0: Brian, I'm so glad we are able to get together and record one last digital noise before the holidays kick in. Uh, I'm not Brian. Um, Brian, I'm a little confused. Why do you have that strange accent? Are you doing an impression of someone? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not Brian. It's me, Richard. Richard. Uh, I'm trying to think. Are, are, I I don't even know what Richard Donner sounds like. Is that what you're doing? I, uh,
1: no, really? Did you not listen to the show while you are in Hong Kong at all?
0: There was a show while we were I was in
1: Hong Kong. Pints.
0: The episode right before Christmas. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you needed a moment to get away from your family, don't we all? But this week, Brian doesn't have that choice, I'm afraid. He is firmly locked in in the faraway state of Indiana, wherever the hell that is. I I think the whole thing is made up, personally. But regardless, he's on family vacation and joining us, of course, is our, our, our fill-in, the master from the side, from the Austin Chronicle, the guy who comes in and tells us we've been wrong all along because he's probably right, Richard! Morning. Hello. How- <laughs> How's it going, Chris? Uh, it is going. I have not actually had my coffee yet, but Diet Dr. Pepper will have to do. Uh, that's a good enough fill-in? Yeah. Don't put milk in it, though. It's a terrible plan. No. Yeah, that screwed it up a bit. Yeah. It did. I thought maybe that would be a new thing. I'd be like, yeah, I'm the guy who came up with that. Hot
1: Dr. Pepper with milk. No. Somewhere there's a hipster going, I can open an entire bar based around that.
0: (laughs) You know, the sad thing is, though, it's probably going to turn out two years from now. That's awesome. And we'll have said it jokingly. And then there'll be like this big thing. We'll be like, why did not we do it. Damn it. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, we don't actually have any viewer mail today because I was so busy. We recorded the original gentleman till late last night. And then after that, I was reminded that uh, I never did play the downloaded game uh, that uh, came out for the new Bioshock. So I started playing. <laughs> You know, it, it's the professionalism that the reader, that the audience comes back for. I, yeah. I know. It's a. Uh... And then I woke up this morning and had lots of editing to do. And it wasn't until you got here and just now that I went, oh shit, no viewer mail. So we're just gonna skip right past that. <laughs> Seamless. Seamless. It's just gonna be one of those shows. One of those great shows where we have lots of awesome stuff to talk about. So you know what? Let's just jump right into this. And you know we're gonna talk about a, a oldie but a goodie, a classic that you can finally buy without having to buy all the ones you may not like as much. That's right, Raiders of the Lost Ark is now available separately on Blu-ray. Huzzah! You don't actually have to buy the. I know people who are like who hate the sequels, who are like what they don't even exist. Not, usually older people who are older when this came out were like love the original, the the next three, certainly the next, you know. Some of them weren't alive when the fourth one came out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? The first one is like, there's no question it's the best oh, of the series. It's, it's
1: a phenomenal film. The question then is, you know, just what order you put the rest in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, uh, one, three, two, four guy, although there was a, about a year that I thought I was a one, three, four, two guy, but oh, I've since changed my mind. Really? Yeah. Uh, I,
1: whereas I'm, I'm probably one, two, four, three. Oh, no. really? You like I, the Last Crusade* the least? Yeah, I it. I don't need to know that much about his family life. <laughs> it and it's kind of it's also got so many minor British character actors doing silly foreign accents it that it really throws me off because I'm going, "That's Alexei Sale. He's from Liverpool. He is not a Turkish prince in North Africa. <laughs> I don't know why you're there." <laughs>
0: I forgot that Alexei Sale was in that. Usually I have cattles. <laughs> oh <laughs> no, Alexei, no. Do, do, doesn't he usually do more of the Russian accent? Oh yes. <laughs> On the young ones. It's your Uncle Jetsy. <laughs> exactly. Coca-Cola, symbol of Free West. I can't believe I even remembered that. Um, yeah, but Raiders, it, when it comes back down to it, I mean, I've, I've got, had a day where I've just gone all the way through this and then you want to start over again with Raiders, yeah. just to get the foul taste of the ending of it out of your mouth. <laughs> if no other reason. I don't know. We, people come down so hard in the fourth one. It's not as bad as all that, but when you watch it at the tail end of watching the first three, It seems pretty bad.
1: Well, I think also there's an element of people want, are are looking for stuff to blame George Lucas for. Oh, yeah. And it's like, he didn't direct it. Steven Spielberg directed it. I mean, you you gotta, let's throw some stones in in the right direction on that
0: one. It's funny, the two of them publicly, not even publicly, but like issued statements were basically fighting over whose fault it was. uh, Did you see that where they kept saying, no, no, that was me, you gotta blame me? No, no, that was me. Don't, I'm over the same shit. Yeah. I'm like, guys, it was both of you. (laughs) You're all horrible um (laughs) at least lucas for once took responsibility for something he did truly being terrible like he still won't do it for jar jar but he admitted that nuking the fridge was an absolute bullshit idea yeah
1: it's i mean it's a funny visual gag but it's so much more extreme a visual gag and outside of the the laws mechanics of the franchise that was established with raiders and that's what raiders does it establishes okay this is old-fashioned two-fisted adventure and and it does it so brilliantly with the opening sequence that it says, "Hey, for people who who never watched anything with Larry Buster crab in it, this is how these kind of films work. Here's the rules: that you know, they're slightly overblown, but there's a grittiness to them. Everybody's a little bit sweaty. Everybody wears fedoras. Uh, there's some cool weapon that you've never seen before. Bullwhips. It made bullwhips cool. When nobody even, you know, I remember at the time, it's like, and I was like." wow, he's doing that stuff with a bullwhip, and that's kind of awesome, and I'm sure led to you know, generations of mid-'80s experimentation with BDSM. Um, <laughs> but it, it does it so brilliantly and then moves into the
0: major plot. I, I, I think that the biggest problem of the series after Raiders is that they went with that mindset like, well, the sequels have to be bigger. And I've always thought that's a huge misunderstanding of what a good sequel has to do. A sequel has to just be another story that Rep keeps... The same in the same world rules. You said keeps that mythology of the physics, whatever. It just tells a different story with different gags. Just keep the characters intact, you know. Let us learn maybe more about who they are, and the the picadillos that later will get them in trouble in this movie from earlier films we we didn't actually get to see. Yeah, as is common with Indiana Jones. (laughs) And it, it it's
1: so good at dropping you straight into that world, and things like. You know, the, you you find out very quickly that Indiana Jones is an academic. That he's, you know, also basically a tomb robber. It sets up wonderfully this relationship with Belloc, the the evil French archaeologist. Yeah. It made archaeology cool.
0: To this day, an almost impossible job, but it did it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I remember when I was a kid and saw this, I went in 1981, I was like, I'm going to be an archaeologist when I grow up. And I had to have it explained to me by my father at length with several different reference books to prove it, <laughs> that archaeology is nothing like this. <laughs> it's mainly sitting in the dirt with a little brush. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of this. Not yeah. much of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the, the big appeals here, A, is John Lucas's fantastic, or not John Lucas, uh, John Williams's fantastic score. Yeah. One of the best things he ever wrote is this, the, the the entire soundtrack to Raiders of the Lost Dark. And two, that they managed to make Indiana Jones sexy both to, to people who like the idea of the super smart guy and the people who like the idea of the super tough guy. Yeah. He's both at the yeah. same time. I you know I I remember even teenage girls at the time being all swoony about Harrison Ford because of that. Yeah, <laughs> you know he's a rebel and he plays by the rules. He, he's it all in one package. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he and you know it's that sense
1: of globe trotting about it. There, I mean that sense of like you know pre-war America when things were still... There was, there was a real sense of optimism and, like, you go out and punch a Nazi in the face and nobody got upset. You know, and now they give them a show on A&E. Ooh, did, did I say that? Um, Nazi
0: Anti-Defamation League. Well, um,
1: I mean, you know, it, it just tapped into so much so well. It, I mean, you could spend years just ripping that script about and saying, why does this work? How deep it is. And then it's it's all bundled up in these fantastic action sequences, including, you know, stuff that just goes, this is going to be huge and big. And, and then it's like completely subverts it. It's timing is astonishing. It's, oh, yeah. it's a masterclass film.
0: I- and it's a Great romp. And it's one of those that you're never going to get tired of watching again and again. This Blu-ray significantly increased the quality over the previous DVD, which already look, looked and sounded great. Uh, now there is a downside with buying this separately as opposed to buying the box set. The box set had a whole separate disc for all the extras. You're not getting any extras if you get this separately. Ooh, really? Yeah, which is, I thought, kind of a... Cheap. And it reflects what's becoming more and more common in the mentality of selling Blu-rays these days, which is, like, let's try and get people to buy the biggest, baddest product, uh, no matter what. A lot of people are like... Like the Wolverine, which came out... You could buy it on Blu-ray, but it was only available as the director's cut, unless you shelled out that extra ten bucks or so to get the 3D edition. Even if you have no interest at all at getting a 3D television.
1: Or set. yeah, I mean that's that's. It's, I get very mad about those kind of huge super bundles of stuff. Yeah, uh, I you, know, Wreck It Ralph when it came out, uh, there was this four-disc edition. And there was a grand total of, like, 20 minutes of extras. It was just embarrassing. I'm like, really? That's just, you know, why? Why do you do this to the audience? You know, you're going to take this kind of money off
0: them and say, oh, you can watch it in 18 different ways. Nobody's going to watch it in 18 different ways. I don't need the DVD and the ultraviolet disc and the 3D Blu-ray. I don't need that. Just give me the version that I intentionally went out to buy, yeah, and then filled. The, if you want to put another disc in there, fill it with bonus features.
1: I'm sure there's some great economic reason to do this, and um, and it's not just a vile conspiracy to to make me tear my hair out.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Even though I own like over 100 3D Blu-rays, I still have no interest in getting a, a 3D television. I yeah. just
1: <laughs> I just don't care. Why would I want that? I have to say, having last Christmas sat home with our uh, and watched Hugo. Mm-hmm. In 3D on a on a home setup, uh, like it, you know, it's actually sometimes it really works, and in fact, a lot of people have said that with Pacific Rim, the 3D is actually better at home because. You can actually see everything, and yeah, it's less like it gets smashed in the face by the entire screen all the can, time. You
0: can turn up the brightness on your television to make up for the darkness of the glasses, as opposed to the theaters, which are using half-standard bulbs anyway most of the time.
1: Yeah, that... Uh, what, uh, uh, don't get me started. Yeah, all those filmmakers who go, hey, we boosted it, and like everybody blames them when it's like watching Six Layers of
0: Mud. Yeah. Uh, alright, so let's move on to our next title here, which is another theatrical release now coming out on Blu-ray, which is Kick Ass 2 Duh.
1: Which which you're gonna have to speak about because I I completely <laughs> missed this in the cinemas and completely so far I've missed it at home. So oh, well, this I... is all you although I do love the 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 comics. Um, so I'm gonna have to ask you. Um, with the first one, I think it went wonderfully until the final act when spoiler uh the jetpack appears and i'm like you've kind of become a different film it's slightly goofier it's, with yeah. this one is it that first Aaron and a bit which is i think a wonderful nasty little little comedy hero thing with with the right amount of gore or is
0: it is it the jetpack it's more of the jetpack oh. and but honestly the biggest problem here is not even that i mean it wants to be both films At times, and it goes back and forth, like, between, like, you know, the big thing in the sequels is to have, I don't want to be this hero anymore. That's the biggest common thing in superhero sequels. So I'm going to stop being it. And it literally jumps back and forth from hit girl to kick ass. Changing their mind and then changing their mind again. Like two times, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You're like, ah, fucking stop it! Just <laughs> somebody decide to be somebody. And it doesn't help the fact that in this one, Aaron Taylor Johnson, whereas in the first one was convincingly this kind of insecure, little nerdy guy, you know, was like, I, but who was like, ah, oh, this is, the you know, I'm so obsessed with superheroes, I've got to do this no matter what. Who's obviously a little psychologically disturbed, but, you know, he was convincing in the part as much as it was a pop, you know, pop psychology as it were analysis of his character here he's just looks like he doesn't really care that much he looks like he thinks he's superman like he's so ripped in this movie like first off and you're like okay you no longer really fit this role yeah or the costume for that matter (laughs) (laughs) i mean you're like you're preparing to play quicksilver in the x-men which seems clear or the avengers i can't remember which one it was uh avengers this because is avengers they exam? can get away with using them
1: because even though they're mutants they no no no. but there's quicksilvers in both
0: movies played by two different actors yeah the guy from uh, american horror story i think it is is playing him in the other one but I yeah the, the right are,
1: it's one of those few areas where the right gets so hazy that i think basically fox and and Disney just decided not to get into a fight about this one because there was no good way forward for either of them. I just,
0: for those things, I don't even understand. I remember, I mean, you, there's a hundred thousand movies out there where it's cross, you know, two companies working together on stuff. But for some reason, when it comes to superheroes, there's no interest at all. In because Marvel wants all those rights back. Yeah, yeah, And so.
1: uh, I think at this point, it's, it's probably just become so ugly behind the scenes that, Fox and Sony are basically just going no we we'll turn something out just to annoy you yeah just to ensure you can't do this
0: this guy should just say fuck it, sell them the rights back for a huge amount of money, and then sign a a first look deal with Image, who, as far as I'm concerned, are pumping out the best comic books these days. Anyway,
1: <laughs> 20th Century Fox presents Sex Criminals. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't see, see that coming happening in the next five. Well, minutes.
0: you know, sooner or later they're going to move The Walking Dead to the big screen anyway. You yeah. know that's going to happen. Somebody's going to go. Why are we keeping this on television? Mm-hmm. We make so much more money if we put it in theaters, and people will go see it. There you go. (laughs)
1: Fifteen hour long. Please, more more like season one than season two. Oh, right, we don't Still want a on the farm.
0: two and a half hour movie where it's just them at the farm having, like, eating at the picnic table. Every once in a while there's a zombie and they shoot it from a distance. There you go. I think it says everything about Kick-Ass 2 and how much it meant
1: to you as a viewer that we've already got on to talk talking about Walking oh, Dead
0: instead. I, it's so easy to get distracted from this because really... All right, so just to get into the plot here, uh b- basically the lead character kickass or dave uh, he's retired after fighting crime you know his kickass at the end of the movie first movie he's had his ass kicked but he ends up getting talked back into getting back into it by hit girl mindy McCready, played actually quite well again by chloe grace moretz she's by far the most interesting character in this movie it's not hard yeah, yeah it's she's so true. good she's i mean she's an she's... excellent actress in fact the, the well we'll get to that in a second but um, meanwhile the the guy who was the who was pretending to be his friend in the first one who was the mobster's kid played by Christopher Mintz-Plast. Who is lovely, Uh, by the way. Yes. He's such a nice guy. I've heard nothing but good stuff about him. He's hilarious and should get more roles. Uh, He accidentally kills his mom, (laughs) which is a really goofy scene. Now he's in control of the whole mob and decides he's going to become a villain called the Motherfucker, which is just the first of many, like, forehead palming like let's just be crude for crudity's sake jokes in this film swears vengeance on kick-ass for killing his dad with the aforementioned rocket launcher um but of course right when kick-ass comes back then mindy slash hit girl decides she can't do anymore because her uh, guardian finds out she's doing it so she says no no no, i can't i can't do it now and and decides with the only interesting story in this whole film to go back to school and try and be a normal student and she doesn't realize she's going to the school in Mean Girls. So, I mean, it's pretty much the plot of Mean Girls here that she enters into as a subplot. And it works. It's funny. You get to see her sitting there and biting her lip with these horrible, horrible yuppie checks until finally she does horrible shit to and revenge. To. <laughs> <laughs> you're like going, you girls don't know what you're doing. Uh But it goes, you know, once again, she goes back, then he quits again, and yada yada. The main thing that people are looking forward to are the moments when there's action. And the action's actually pretty well handled in here overall. When they finally get to a point where everything throws down... That's a pretty cool scene. It's well-directed. Not uh, by the original director, but now by Jeff, uh, which was Matthew Vaughn, who's just ex- uh, co-producing, but now by Jeff Wadlow, who's pretty much a... I mean, he's done some films, but nothing you've really ever heard of. He's kind of a new guy. He's been assigned to X-Force by Marvel now. Ooh. We'll see if that lasts. But really this is kind of about two gangs versus it's like building up from separate heroes to super superhero groups because he gets kick-ass gets his own group of other superheroes around him who are all equally non-powered really they're just people who really want to be superheroes most notably jim carrey as colonel stars and stripes who is quite funny in this for the relatively brief period of time he's in the film <laughs> Is uh, it longer than the time he was doing publicity for it? Right, when he turned around and goes oh, by the way, that film sucks, don't see it
1: <laughs> uh, No, we, no, it's it's too violent. At which point did you realize in
0: when reading the script? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. when you're fighting a guy called the motherfucker and you're, you're, part of your gig is having your German shepherd bite people in the balls. Yeah, probably <laughs> a sign this may be a violent film Jim. It's like, do you know what decade you're living in, Jim mm-hmm. Carrey? I'm just saying, there's this guy named Quentin Tarantino who's made some films. Some of them even strangely got nominated for Oscars when they didn't deserve it. But still, some of them didn't get nominated when they did deserve it. (laughs) Uh... Anyway, so it, it's, and the, the motherfucker's got his own gang and, and uh, eventually it's all building up to one big fight that the outcome is inevitable. There's just not a lot of surprises other than how poorly written the script is. The big the nice thing is you you get some nice turns from some of the actors. Like I said, Jim Carrey is genuinely funnier here than I've seen him in something for in a while. Surprisingly that he was the one coming out talking shit about it, but you're when your lead character is just as boring and flat as as Aaron Taylor-Johnson is is in this film. It's just hard to give a shit one way or the other. I I wish I could say I liked it because I did like the first one. And I agree with you. The ending's a little like, okay, now you've kind of like, he is literally in a comic book now. Yeah. But... Uh, overall, it was a lot of fun. Regardless, this comes with a alternate opening. It's about three and a half minutes with a commentary by the director, uh, a unshot scene with storyboards that was gonna, that says it was Big Daddy Returns, but I didn't watch it. I assume it was probably a flashback or something, uh, which is Nicolas Cage's character from the first one. Oh, uh, for, he was so great he, in that because he, he he's so ridiculous. It was one of the big appeals was him and his relationship with Hit Girl in the first one. was yeah. like, so the fact, like that opening scene where he's shooting her in the chest with a gun and you're just like, what the fuck? is this yeah and that terrible mustache as well oh, the worst as of the best decision too, to do that. <laughs> uh extended scenes a making of kick-ass uh a look at the the hit girl who's sort of like you know, jumping around a van while people are shooting at the inside of the van like a look at that sequence which i actually thought looked terrible but i guess they were proud of it and a commentary with most of the cast so that is kick-ass too i cannot particularly recommend it but if you liked it in the theater they do put together a halfway decent package for you All right. Well, let's move on to a smaller title now that we did both see. This is one of those ones that if you pay any attention to sort of like what was going on, like reading critics' websites or following the indie scene at all, you heard a lot of people talking about this film, Ain't Them Bodies Saints. Now, said this was directed by David Lowry, and at first I was like, is that the guy from Camper Van Beethoven? <laughs> I was like, that's the guy's name, right? Do you, do you want
1: to explain that reference to anybody under the age of 40? No. 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 But you got it. <laughs> that's was, all
0: that matters. I was like, I met that guy. <laughs> I am that guy. <laughs> oh, my God, Richard. <laughs> Mask comes off. That would be the best day of my life. <laughs> uh, this is a story featuring um, Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara as sort of a... Okay, first let me. They're the stars, but let me say this: it is a return to sort of the romantic American Western in a lot of ways, like that sort of like almost sort of Terrence Malick's Badlands sort of thing. Yeah, really like that same sort of feel, that same sort of cinematography. It's definitely very much nodding its hat towards early Malick. But the story here follows Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, who right at the beginning have committed a crime and they you know you don't get to, see, you never see the crime you just see the aftermath as they're trapped in a shootout versus the police in a small yeah. burnout house uh and they end up he ends up taking the fall for the whole thing saying i i forced her to do it and goes to jail This is not the sort of relationship that comes to an end when someone gets a 25-year sentence. No. And she was pregnant at the time, and the film follows them as initially he's writing her from jail, and she's living a sort of solitary life, till when he escapes from jail, and everybody is out looking, including old mutual friends who are like, look, the worst thing you can do is go to her. You're going to fuck up her whole life if you go to her now. Go and start something else somewhere else. I'm not going to turn you in, but... Uh, as uh, Keith Carradine says at one point, Tim, if you go and you and you talk to her, it, it's on with us. Yeah. It is on. <laughs> uh, and it ends up being, a, I don't know, it's its kind of a beautiful film, I thought, in many ways, but it's going to be too slow for a lot of people. I think it's its kind of
1: what a lot of people wish Malik was still doing. And it, it is, it's very definitely riffing on Badlands and very definitely riffing on... Um, Bonnie and Clyde. Um there was actually a horrible, horrible straight to video uh movie recently put out called Bonnie and Clyde Justified, which is truly one of the worst I mean it was the only reason it was put out was because A and E and History had their big oh, right. two-part Bonnie and Clyde, totally historically inaccurate uh <laughs> series, which was still kind of fun. Um but yeah, this thing is, it's dreadful. The, the one thing it's really got going for it is that it's based on the letters that Bonnie and Clyde sent to each other while Clyde was in prison before the big spree happened. Right. They were, like she was a very petty criminal. He'd done a few heists, but nothing, nothing the scale of what they did. And that really is a big inspiration here because you have Casey Affleck's character reading these undelivered letters, um, to, uh, um, Rudy Moore. Yeah, her, her characters, her character, and you know her undelivered letters to him because they can't get through the prison system. And they, that's really an obvious part of the inspiration, and that that works really well because you've got this idea: of these two people who can't communicate anything to each other because of everything that gets in the way. And you're, it, it's weird because you compare it to uh, another film we'll be talking about in a bit. These are very unsympathetic characters everything they do is really quite unpleasant but you have a degree of you you understand them you feel some sympathy for them they're bad people with good intentions making bad decisions yeah um and it's obviously this this is not going to end well particularly when you have a, a another love interest start to come in in the form of the local local detective who is you know he's kind of sweet on her not realizing that in fact you know the person who shot him during the the uh, initial shootout sequence
0: was her which makes such an interesting uh, honestly i thought the most interesting part of the story was the relationship between her and uh that chair pl- a play by ben foster who i think is a wonderful actor yeah. anyway and is just starting to get people turn their heads and go oh yeah that guy i like that guy um I think that that complication is that she genuinely is in love with her husband and has no intention of leaving her husband for anyone, but she appreciates the attention that he's that that, that, that uh, Ben Foster's character is giving her she appreciates the attention and she appreciates the fact that there's another man around she's been so secluded for so long but she is completely devastated every time she sees him by her own guilt and knowing that she's got this secret that she was the one who actually shot him
1: and I think nobody does period weasel quite as well as Casey Affleck <laughs> he you know it, true they stopped <laughs> making people who look like Casey Affleck somewhere around like 1962 right I I think um and he just you know he just does it so well he's like those little darting eyes he's just i can't
0: whenever they try and cast him in a more like oh no this is totally just a good guy role he's a hero i'm always like don't do that that's not it, some people can't get past their appearance and casey affleck when they give him something like this to do when they give him a cr- little weasley criminal give him a lot of depth give him a good director and you've got a great movie yeah. and i think this is a good example of him being extremely well used
1: and it's A gorgeous film. Oh, yeah. I I mean, to go back to the Malik thing, because obviously everything Lowry did, he must have been looking over his shoulder and thinking, Badlands is over my shoulder, and I I have to be very aware of that. Yeah. Um, It's it's gorgeously shot. One of the best scores of the year. The score is just phenomenal. It's this, you know, roots, Americana, bluegrass. Um, It just works so well with the period of the film, the feel of the film, you know, it's it's very engrossing. Yeah. Because I, would... I, I had like 20 other things I was supposed to be doing yesterday. <laughs> and, I, and I just kind of went, no, I'm just going to put this in and I may have to stop halfway through. And I was like, no, I'm sucked all right the way it. in, all yeah.
0: the way through. I actually watched this when I was tired thinking, like towards the end of the night, going, okay, well, I'll watch some of this and finish it tomorrow. It's probably slow moving. And I was with it till the end, despite that it is a slow moving film. It's just, it's so atmospheric and yeah. the way it draws you in. And you really do care about these not terribly good people who have made some horrible decisions and know they made horrible decisions, but now what are they supposed to do when love is the most important thing that there is, you know, for them? It's you, you do root for them despite the mistakes they made. And I love a film that can start you off on that foot like that.
1: And it doesn't feel the urge to fill in all the gaps. You know, it, you know, there's points where people from their past turn up and, It doesn't need to explain who they are or details. You know, it's very spacious in that way, and it works incredibly well. It's it's a film which you know kind of credits the audience with a bit of intelligence, which I'm happy with. (laughs) I'm always pleased to see the film doesn't spoon feed me everything. and, And frankly, I think. If this had been released later in the year, it would be getting a lot more Oscar talk, but yeah. it's the curse of, of award season that basically if you came out before September yeah. you are forgotten about. Particularly the score. The yeah. score is is so phenomenal. And you've got that the sound editing. As just-
0: well with that, where it's like there's so many big movies like this coming out, it's you you got that choice between getting an Oscar or making some money on your release too, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a lot of the right way to do it always seems to me is just Release it in February and do a limited release on New York and L.A. for a week in and, and, uh December, like a yeah. lot of films do. So it's like, okay, that way it qualifies.
1: Because as we know, uh, the only critics in the world exist in New York and L.A. Yeah, apparently, yeah, obviously,
0: <laughs> not bitter. Did you see the, the articles going around today where apparently a bunch of critics were booing and screaming at the Wolf of Wall Street uh, screening they got in? I believe it was New York, and these were, uh, and it was for the Academy what? to see it. And several members of the it, Academy can? told Martin Scorsese, sh- like, one person apparently said, shame on you, Martin, shame on you, right to his face. What? Uh, yeah, because they found it so offensive. And it's like, hello, have you ever seen a Martin Scorsese film before? Was what? Seriously? Yeah. Was Hugo your first one? Because apparently you missed, like, a few along <laughs> he, the way. You,
1: <laughs> he does have the, his odd proclivity for violence uh, and unpleasantness uh, and yeah. scumbags. And the, yeah.
0: But that's, we'll get to talking about that in the future. Uh, <laughs> and I look forward to it because oh, yes. Wall Street is is fun but uh this is actually believe it or not which is very uncommon for a little indie film like this loaded with extra features that are pretty amazing including a 13 minute documentary about this by the ross brothers who made oh god i can't even say it chew Chihu- uh thank you i couldn't even say that after you just said it
1: i only know it because i uh, i've been there okay i actually it's, saw that movie it's an area of uh, new orleans and it's uh, yeah there's some great seafood around chopper tulis
0: uh, in a film called 45365, which I didn't see, but they go by the locations of it and they capture some behind the scene action and stuff. There's nine minutes of deleted scenes. There's a music video for a song by, performed by Keith Carradine, which is odd. I didn't what? know he's a musician. There's he may a- not be. <laughs> yeah, right. That it would make on, it even better. It depends on how you define musician. Uh, about five minutes of behind the scene, extra behind the scene stuff, the trailer, uh, and, the best thing is that, all right, first off, there's a thing that says color bars, but if you wait for the color bars to go by, uh, there's a series of bloopers and outtakes, which you also don't expect from a little indie film like this. But holy shit, there's a whole nother movie here. The first film by David Lowery, which was called St. Nick, about a young brother and sister who have run away from home and live out in the woods, uh, like in Badlands, <laughs> the entire hour and a half film is on here.
1: I, I think that's a wonderful thing to do for filmmakers. Uh, they did the same thing with, uh, Vanishing Waves, the director's first feature. Oh, is there, is, oh, is, I didn't know is that. I'm pretty sure it's Vanishing Waves. The first feature is on there and it's phenomenal and you can really see, you know, this is something that's not going to be worth releasing because there's not going to be enough people to buy it, but you can really finally get somebody's calling card out there. And I, I, you know, I think if somebody who's coming along and they've got a good second feature and the first one is basically, a grad school project yeah. that's never going to get a release I you know I'd rather it was out there so people can experience it right. and see, oh, yeah, I, I, here's how they evolved.
0: Because sometimes some people are going to see films like this and be so taken with it, they're going to want to know, what else did this guy do? It's like, well, pretty much this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how awesome would it have been if you'd have picked up Jaws and it had come with a copy of Duel right? in there? Right, yeah. You know, that would just be like,
0: yeah, phenomenal. Which, you know, at the time was not like separately released at all. It was like it had aired on television and like once and that was about it.
1: I think it was Theatrically released in Europe, was it? I okay. want to say, but it was never. Uh, it never appeared. Yeah, I think it was just over TV here because he was. Here. You know, he was doing night. Spielberg was doing Night Gallery and stuff like that. I and mean, right. he was not a a, a big name.
0: No, and this was
1: pretty much pre-home release anyway. So. <laughs>
0: Well, let's move to something else set in the West, except the mo- more the modern West. And I don't know if you watched the show Justified, Richard.
1: I am so far behind on this, and it drives me mad because it's one of those things that I just go, I really want to catch up on. I, I watched the first season, and I love the fact that there was a, a show that, well, one, uh, I, I think... People will finally do a Breaking Bad and go back and watch it and go, Holy crap, this thing has just so multi leveled. Yeah. The performances are so amazingly strong. And it is, you know, there's actually a whole swathe of these really good, kind of slightly hidden on, on TV, um, West, modern westerns going on. It's was like uh, Long March as well, um, which oh, I haven't seen nobody that one. has seen. Yeah. You know, Long March? Kind of, yeah, I'm trying to remember which. I can't remember which channel it's on. It's like old grumpy sheriff in the middle of Nebraska (laughs) and bad things happen around him. And Lou Diamond Phillips is his uh, slightly corrupt bartender friend. And it's actually, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it is, um, NCIS to justify CSI. Right. But it's actually pretty good. I mean, it's, better than ncis which is no, a different story
0: well, me, but justified yes <laughs> it seems like like a lot of people now in the wake of breaking bad are casting around what other great really multi-layered dramas are out there and justified is one of those ones that i've seen more and more people just now discovering yeah which is great because i think this is the role that timothy Oliphant was like born to play yeah first off i mean like really any elmore leonard character i think he'd probably be good at. yeah but like playing one that gets to wear a cowboy hat yeah, you should just, you just stapled that to his head as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and this is the fourth season now of the show that's actually been doing excellent on the FX network, uh, based originally on a very short story, uh, by, uh, Elmore Leonard and eventually taking stuff from another book. And now, like, one of the last things he wrote was apparently Based on the success of this, he wrote a book called *Raylan*, which now they're going to take elements ah. of that and r- run it into the series. Elmore is very smart about making money from being Elmoreland. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he was. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. The sad that he just we just uh, lost him, what, just a few, like a month ago or yeah. something like that. But Justified Season 4, much like the previous seasons, takes it to the next level. I have yet to see a season of the show that wasn't better than the season before it. And this is in many ways no exception except it's different than the previous ones which always had this is the big bad here's every them slowly like a giving slowly realizing that he's going to have to deal with the big bad here's him basically putting his foot down and drawing a line in the sand going if you guys don't I'll let you keep selling your pot or whatever it is you do but if you if you don't stop this shit I'm coming after you yeah. and then eventually he comes after them this one has a, actually about a mystery that was unsolved for 30 years. As we see in the beginning in 1983, a guy wearing a parachute plummeting into Kentucky, uh, with, with his body surrounded by bags of cocaine and, uh, an ID tag that says Waldo Truth. This mystery comes back when Raylan, uh, discovers a vintage diplomatic bag that's hidden at his, his son of a bitch dad Arlo's house in the walls of it that, and he's like, well, what the hell is this thing? And finds out that this, it's tied into this guy who supposedly died a long time ago named Drew Thompson. And then it turns out that, wait a minute, what if he didn't actually die? And he knows all these secrets about all these mobsters. And he was involved in the theft of all this coke and money. I mean, it's kind of a D.B. Cooper story. Yeah. As it goes along, it you know, that's not like dominating the whole thing. It's always in the background and eventually builds to something as we get to the end of the season. You've also got things like, I mean, one of the best villain, most incredible villains really on television here is uh the character played by what's the walton goggins oh. i love so much on the shield boyd crowder such a great villain and whereas he's gone from this arc in the show so far from being out now just kind of a redneck villain to being like no no i want to i found god and now i'm going to be like uh, try and do the right thing to now being like um, I'm really, really, really smart. I'm Moriarty smart, but with the redneck attitude. <laughs> and I'm going to become not just, I, I'm not going to be some little scumbag villain. I'm going to be the top dog. This season is a lot about his art to being like, kind of like, I'm going to climb to the top of the heap and control this entire state's drug trade. Yeah. Which is fascinating because it's very much like a series of like upsets and successes for him. He gets so much to do. He even like, we see the human side of him where he has fully committed back with his ex-wife. And he's like, I really genuinely love you. And watching their romance, even though they're both really, I mean, they're murderous criminals. <laughs> You're really, you want their relationship to work out. You're like, oh, that's so sweet that they actually have that really abiding love like that. Walton Goggins is just a genuinely phenomenal
1: actor. My my biggest point of complaint uh with Machete Kills was... I went great. Walton Goggins in here, and then he disappeared after like a minute and a half. And I'm like, no, bring Walton back. <laughs> like, I, I mean, he's just in, got this incredible sleazy charisma. He was one of the best things about The Shield, which I think is, oh, is yeah. a series that people are increasingly going back and realizing how great that was. I mean, people it was talk so about amazing. Shakespearean in Breaking Bad. I mean, it is truly and overtly Shakespearean, and it, the best, the best open-ended payoff to a series ever you you get all the way through and something like you know a lot of series you kind of go well they bring it to a resolution it feels like oh they went oh it's the end of the final series we have got to finish it or it's left open and it's like it's too ambiguous
0: this is just a great character piece and he was so good in that oh and my god and he's been in movies forever yeah like he's one of those guys i'll watch an old movie i like and they go oh my god look it's walton goggins <laughs> i didn't know he was in that because only now do we know who he is i'd love to see him and john c
1: mcginley <laughs> in the <a> scene, <laughs> two guys go over go, "Oh shit, it's him from that thing!" Right, I like, right. But he's—I think he's really—he's getting a lot of recognition from from this show, and particularly oh, yeah. from from what I'm hearing from from you know season four and five, people are really going, "This guy is really truly spectacular." And you know, season one, that wonderful balance between him and Timothy Olyphant is like—you really do go, they are one step away from being each other. <laughs> yeah, and that it's kept that up through four seasons as the hero becomes slightly more of a hero and the bad guy becomes slightly more of a bad guy and they're like amplifying each other. And I think, you know, to pull
0: that off, there's this great moment in this season where, uh, basically, uh, uh Raylan's asking, uh, Boyd. So, you know, how do you sleep a night knowing what you do at the end of sort of a monologue? And they keep talking and it turns around where Boyd is able to give that exact same speech right back at Raylan. Raylan can't say a goddamn thing. (laughs) You know, you're like, yeah, that is true. You guys are both kind of, you're just both right there on the edge of the law all the time. Yeah, I mean, they are reflections of each other in many ways. That's why it's such a fascinating relationship. And yet they both do. It's like at first when the first season is like, starts, I mean, they were friends when they were kids, but like, now, there's no respect for Raylan DuBois at all at the first season. He's like, you're just a piece of shit criminal. I'm gonna pull you in. But at this point, He knows what he's dealing with and he does kind of respect them. He is kind of like, look, I'm not going to, if I was going to bring you to jail, there's one speech that's like, if I was going to put you in jail, I've got a laundry list of shit I can put you in jail for. But ain't, yeah, I'm not, it's not going to go down like that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pull you in for something real if I'm going to pull you in. (laughs) No, Uh, no tax avoidance for this one. Exactly. Yeah. You're not dying of syphilis (laughs) in prison. Also really spectacular in this season. There's two, two more actors here who I think are very underappreciated and are just now starting to get more appreciative of what they're capable of doing dramatically. One is Jim Beaver, who appeared briefly last season but now has a much bigger part as a sheriff who kind of has found himself because of a secret known by uh, Boyd Crowder kind of under his thumb and reluctantly having to do stuff for him he'd rather not. And about this arc for him is about him Finding a way out from underneath that based partially on the fact that he's sheltering a young prostitute that Boyd wants to kill. Uh, The other really surprisingly awesome thing in this is Patton Oswalt, who joins the cast as a kind of pathetic little constable, which is like just above being a security guard pretty much, uh, who is really, who deals with massive insecurity every day that everyone, I mean, everybody talks shit to him wherever they go. They just like, whatever, you little pig pussy, get the fuck out of here. You're not even a real cop. Like guys just talk down. to him, to his face like that. He can't do anything about it. He's just kind of getting sick of it. And the only person who seems to be nice to him at all is Raylan Givens, who's like, you know, it's like, he's a good guy. Come on. Don't be mean to him. And he has this really fascinating arc that comes to him at the end, getting to do one of the most intense, like, guy getting beaten up because he won't, Tell what he knows scenes I've seen in any television show ever where it's so uniquely Patton Oswald where his humor is still there. And yet it just makes you want to cry to watch it because he's getting the living shit pummeled out of him in yeah. the sequence. He gets this incredible arc in the show where I'm like, wow, Patton cowboy hat is off to you sir <laughs> but i really recommend season four if you've been enjoying the show it's not going to dissatisfy you at all it's right up there with the as the best stuff they've ever done and if you haven't started yet my god just go and get season one start from the beginning it is one of the best shows currently on television oh, yeah. undeniably yeah uh, a lot of various special features on here that you expect from these certain outtakes commentaries little featurettes about elements of, of the show and and uh uh new characters on it, including a thing specifically about Patton Oswalt. Uh And there's bonus content here as well on the Blu-ray, including a special about Walton Goggins in particular, which, of course, is always worth looking at. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's move on to something else here. And let's talk for a minute about Elysium. You saw right?
1: right? Uh, I think we were at the same screening. I think we had a bit of an argument afterwards about did whether we? it was really? genius or not.
0: <laughs> well, Elysium is one of those films that did divide critics, certainly. This is the second film by Neil Blomkamp, who brought out to great acclaim uh, his first film. Was it District uh, District 9, yeah. right? Okay, I always want to say District 13, but that's District B13, which yeah. is a French uh, parkour film.
1: <laughs> yeah, which, which is which is great which is actually a, a really great little film it is a fun little film it's, it's completely sequel, nuts. not so much but I, well we, we'll talk about that in <laughs> a moment because I, I have a i have a theory
0: about, okay. about this film. but we'll, we'll go we'll go there in a moment but uh you know i think the problem that a lot of people had with elysium and i understand it i do more so now than i did initially was that even though he's still dealing with like it's i think it's just as smart with its political and sociological themes, certainly. I mean, it's, I mean, it doesn't exist outside of them in some ways at the same time, he, it feels needy for attention. Like, I need to lay a more traditional Hollywood film and Hollywood themes on top of this for anyone to take me seriously is what it feels like to some extent. Yeah. And that plays out largely with, uh, the, the plot elements that have to do with Jodie Foster's character, who is, uh, the secretary of defense, who is, she, forget what her role even is. She is like the ultimate, like, yuppie 1% piece of shit who's ever lived. Like, I'm French. Like George W. Yeah, George W. Bush would go like, seriously, lady? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the separation here, if you guys don't know already, most of you probably do. There's 2154. There's two classes of people. There's the 1% and there's absolutely everybody else. The 1% live on this huge space station called Elysium that floats over the Earth in or- orbit and is filled. It's just, you know, it's every uh, amazing bit of technology that exists is up there. No one ever gets sick because there's he- these wonderful med-, med bays that cure you of whatever you everything. want. They've got, yeah, everything is there you could ever want whereas earth is just fucked it's overpopulated it smells bad you can only get old issues of cracked not even mad it's just really it's not so good uh and in amongst all this of course is matt damon playing max da Costa, who uh matt damon as the world's least convincing hispanic gentleman <laughs> what is the, that was an odd choice it was a very it? intriguing it's like yeah. he's the only white guy in that entire neighborhood <laughs>
1: yeah and he's it, very matt damon yeah very Matt Damon in this well, which is not a bad thing uh, yeah, but it's it, not, it's a, it is a weird casting call
0: it's I think it was this was another one of those that probably the studio going because he was not who he wanted he wanted Eminem to play this role actually, really which I hate to say it would have made sense I think it would have been phenomenal yeah uh, but and Matt Damon I mean he doesn't do a bad job in it. he's just odd casting he's a former criminal who lives in the ruins of Los Angeles works in an assembly line for this huge corp- military corporation that makes arms and weapons for Elysium but there's an accident at the plant that a Exposes them to a lethal dose of radiation, saying, "You got five days to live." Yeah, the world's worst health and safety at that plant. It really, like,
1: everything seems to be designed in a way that is like, "Well, we know we've got lots of disposable poor people, so uh, we'll we'll let them die regularly." It just really badly run. It just seems inefficient. Yeah, that doesn't happen
0: anywhere here except for, well, okay, now this oh,
1: yeah, but, but it's like actively uh, <laughs> actively designed to, yeah. to endanger people. It's not like passive, like oh, something may go wrong, but eh, you lose a few fingers right, right. Like, It's like, it, like, those machines are out to it,
0: get you. It's built like the innards of the ship in Galaxy Quest <laughs> Why is that there? That doesn't make any sense Who designed this? What an asshole! <laughs> uh, but, of course, like, he decides that's not good enough. I'm going to get onto the dream as people try to do all the time and fail. I'm going to find a way onto Elysium, get into one of these med bays, which is the only way I can be cured. And I would be cured in five minutes yeah. and and cure my cancer. Uh He gets wrapped into a whole thing where he has to go to a smuggler uh, and agree to get there but only if he steals financial information while he's up there and he it, part of the deal they give him the super exoskeleton so he can actually move around and be strong and be go up so he can punch Shalto copley eventually which is kind of awesome yeah it yeah. is kind of awesome i've often been tempted to punch charlotte copley and you never even met him uh, he's just so weasley yes <laughs> i like him, him and casey affleck should have a weasel off. they should and walton goggins yeah, well, It'd be like Walton the Goggins, would be, measliest guy But Walton Goggins, you know, would just be the guy who like ended up was in the background making money off the whole thing. Cha chao. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, you guys you just uh I don't actually get directly involved. <laughs> anyway I think this works much more than it doesn't. I think it has excellent special effects and very innovative ones. I think maybe a little more too familiar to District uh, 9 at points, where you're like, okay, this feels like it's almost the same world as that, really. So much so is that the point of the thing is so much related to it as well. Although, certainly, the biggest dig here at this film, to the point where like, the director even said at one point... Um, everybody wants to ask me lately about my predictions for the future says, no, no, this isn't science fiction. This is today. This is now. Uh, He's saying, look, the rich have taken all the health for themselves. They've taken all the good work jobs for themselves. They've, they've taken the colleges for themselves. They've taken everything from yourselves and made you feel like you should admire them for it. Like the American dream is now like being them not just having a reasonable existence. Yeah. And, I mean, I, and that's I, ultimately what the point of this is. I like the fact
1: that it is a studio film that is such a shameless political allegory. And I know a few people were like, it hit me over the head, and it's like, well, maybe you need hitting over the head once in a, once in a while. You know, I mean, Eisenstein had babies being pushed downstairs and people being shot through the classes. You know, it's like the ultimate sign of anti-intellectualism. You, you shoot people through the thing that they read with. oh yeah like, that is okay once in a while. I mean it, it, you know and that we have a heavily, heavily political film. And I, I love the fact that some people I know who've seen it who don't really see themselves as political kind of start talking about healthcare afterwards and suddenly go, Yeah, you know, actually no. I call me a socialist, but I believe we should have universal healthcare and I'm like, ooh, hang on, this film worked. This film did what it wanted to do. And yeah. I do feel like it's got some very broad moments in it. And they felt to me like District B thirteen, particularly the sequel, which gets kind of big and almost cartoonish, and like you've gone from you know a parkour detective cop drama in the first one <laughs> to uh, you know I love that you that's have a these, genre now. <laughs> it should be there should be more of that, and Matt Damon should be in one of them. Just going really, I I don't want to bounce off that. Yeah, um, no bouncing for Damon. And then, but. It, you have these kind of big, broad stereotypes that are drawn out in B-13 and they, the same thing happens here to a certain degree. I think it's wonderfully shameless. And it's it's kind of a very French film in a lot of ways. It's like, it, it has a lot of the, the energy of modern French street cinema. Um, so I think that was kind of maybe sometimes what was a little bit off-putting for some American audiences, mm. because something like B-13, it is big and cartoonish and wonderful, um, but it's not Hitting the same beats as um, as a lot of more conventional big Hollywood releases, and I think it's you know it people had some problems with District Nine that they watched it and went well you know the narrative flow is a bit weird, and I think with this you see the camp is is still you know he's he's a, an African and European director, and I think. You have to remember that to a certain degree. It's not making allowances for it. It's like a slightly different form of storytelling. Sure. Um, and the fact that you know he does have you know, the the ultimate ice queen villain in this. Yeah. Uh, and makes her French, which is so wonderfully, you know, they, like, <laughs> okay, let's make a film about, about basically class consciousness and access to healthcare and, and have this, you know, glacial French presence. And, and she does try, but her accent is, it, it wavers occasionally, yeah. but it's, it's, you know, it, it's little digs like that that I thought were were phenomenal.
0: Well, the thing is like she ultimately in the movie he's making is a symbol and not even really a character like and I, I think that that's part of the problem a lot of people had accessing this film making is that so many of these people here have not much actual depth to them at all are not yeah. convincing as people in any way. He's telling a fable, yeah. really, about now. Uh, it's all metaphor. Even Matt Damon is barely a character throughout this. He's a, symb- a symbol of the proletariat, you know? <laughs> you know. And I think that that drove a lot of people crazy, but I, there's so much shine here. There's so much, I mean, stuff that's entertaining and fun along the way. And, that I had trouble really resenting it for that. I mean, it wore it on its sleeve, that's what it was. Yeah. From the first 20 minutes of the film, you're like, this is the kind of thing you're getting into. It's a political fable, but with l- just lots of people getting shot and cool science fiction stuff, who am I to complain?
1: And it did have William Fichtner as the the world's most oblivious industrial plutocrat. Right. I, that was one thing I really liked about this. It was like, you've got this real sense, and... Um, sorry, about to be a bit of uh, French left-bank philosophers going on here. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think it was uh, Barthes had this idea of, of biopower, that he said, you know, what people have forgotten is that, ultimately, the 99%. That means there's 99 of you to every one member of the 1%. Right. And... Um, the, you know, the 1% kind of get, kind of forget this after a while and do become oblivious. And Figner just wanders through as this guy who owns the factory where Matt Damon gets irradiated and doesn't turn into the Hulk, which would have been cool. Um, <laughs> a very different film. Very certainly. different film. But, you know, when bad things start happening to him, he's just like, oh, oh. Oh, he's not. Ah, he's like he. Nothing bad has ever happened to him, so he doesn't even understand how to react to bad he stuff. He doesn't he's like, have a frame of I'm reference. I'm slightly confused by this, <laughs> and he, and it was that was rather glorious because yeah. he's just like, no, I'm so spoilt. I don't know even how to be upset.
0: Yeah, there's a point of this towards the end of his appearance in this film where he's like, looks more just kind of indignant. Than like, <laughs> than in a panic, like you should be. There's you know? a lot of, how dare you?
1: People are <laughs> waving, you know, plasma torches in his face. He's like, uh, this is appalling. You should stop now.
0: <laughs> don't you know who I am? It really is. It's a, it's a real, don't you know who I am moment. Uh, yeah, I, 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 this couldn't have been made by anybody who hadn't been at the bottom level of that rung at some level yeah. of their existence. I'm sure he worked as a waiter in an expensive hotel at some point or something. Neil Blomkamp, that is. But I don't I mean, know, I think Fickner gets that as well, because you really yeah, feel he's so. playing
1: that and going, this, he's, he, ha, he knows who he is playing in that moment. You can feel there's a real sense of him going, yeah, I hope you recognize yourself. He's such M- a terrific... Mr. 2% two, two tip.
0: He's Fuck such you. a ter- terrific character actor, and I'm so glad he's finally starting to become like more of a known name. Yeah. I love Fickner. Uh, such a great villain in anything, and he can play totally different kinds of villains. And if you what? haven't seen it, do see him in Wrong... Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. he's, he's such a different role from anything he's else he's ever done. Not,
1: you, you expect that he's like this super bad guy because it's William Fickner and like, yeah, when isn't he a bad guy? But he just turns up and he's like totally goofy
0: and goofy weird and funny and hilarious. <laughs> You're like, Will yeah. William <laughs> <laughs> Uh Anyway, th- I think ultimately I enjoyed this a lot because it, it, it partially I what you started with was saying... You know what? There's nothing wrong with films that do beat you over the head with things that need to be said politically every once in a while. I mean, indie films do it more often, but the fact that Hollywood actually put one out like this, that's not like just kind of the same exact shit we've seen a billion times before, like Oscar bait. This isn't Oscar bait. This is for the people who need to hear this message. Yeah, <laughs> You know, the people who are like, I just want to see an action movie. They may come out irritated, but now at least it's going to be a talking point. Yeah. This is going to be sat in dollar theaters for a lot longer than
1: 12 years a slave. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, you know, there's this question of who are you talking to and what, what degree you expanding the, the political discussion. Um, you know I, and it does that phenomenally and it has lots of shooty and bang and Charlito and and Matt with cybernetics bolted awkwardly onto them and that was one of the great design decisions that they make is that you've seen lots of film with cybernetics but they go well it's all inside or maybe there's like one glowing eye yeah, but sure. this is
0: like no they have stuff Bolted into their bones. Which reminds me of like a Deus Ex. I don't know if you've ever played yeah, those games, but yeah. it's very much that. Like there's all these guys just filled with mechanics and parts and it's never, they're never all cool and shiny looking. No. <laughs> <laughs> they look, they look terrible, <laughs> but they're like, Hey man, I can jump 20 feet. I don't know. What to tell
2: yeah. You. And,
1: and the fact that, you know, Matt Damon's character embraces this because it's something he has to do to get what what he wants done. And Charlito Copley embraces it just because he's horrible. He's he is this a... incredible, unpleasant, not even a, a hitman. He's this, you know, force of nature that the, the plutocrats on the, on the floating space station, uh, unleash occasionally In to do ways, stuff that they're not supposed he
0: to He just do. represents the military. Yeah. As, yeah, You know, he is that, thought, like, it doesn't really have an identity of its own. It gets yeah. sent out, you know. He's Blackwater.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's he's those, you know, off-the-books, unpleasant little forces. You know, he's a, he's a uh, kind of post-cyber Captain Willard. Really, yeah. But without any of the, the niceness about him.
0: Agreed. Uh, now, of course, this, it uh, looks beautiful on the Blu-ray, uh, and it, it really, it's more or less m- most of what you expect from a decent collection of extras on here, but nothing that in particular stands out. A bunch of separate featurettes that go in the various different elements, uh, of the film and the casting, uh, three-part documentary, uh, that, that, that is more of an EPK, I believe, than anything else. Uh, there's one extended scene, called Kruger wakes up, but it's only like a minute and 45 seconds. Uh, and then uh, the, uh, I guess the pop-up stuff in here is like where you can explore the conceptual art, 3d models and visual effects progressions uh, during the, the course of the film. But uh, I think it's a solid package. It's, you know, I always, my, my favorite, one of my favorite things for these sort of things is when they end Add trivia tracks, which as far as I'm concerned sure should be standard for yeah. anything. This does not have that. <laughs> or a gag reel at the very least. Because i like to see after film everybody that they had fun making it. And maybe they didn't have fun making this. I don't know. There's no gag
1: reel. There seems <laughs> to be a lot of, of uh, stuff to fall over. And, yeah. and it can't have been, particularly, considering particularly how much Charlito and, and Matt are kind of wandering around with all this stuff bolted on, it doesn't look like that was comfortable to work with. But that's kind of, you know, it's not supposed to.
0: Very true. Well, let's go to horror (laughs) and the folks at Scream Factory, who we love so much. Oh, gosh, I love the guys guys at Scream Factory. We don't share the exact same taste in movies all the time, but I do appreciate the fact that they're pulling out these little like, films that have kind of a cult following, like barely a cult following, (laughs) but you never would have get a chance to discover them otherwise, and they treat them with reverence. Oh,
1: I don't think they're what Criterion used to be. And with those words, I am now off Criterion's mailing I was say, list I was forever. I mean, I love Criterion, but a lot of what they're doing these days is re-releases of earlier packages.
0: Yeah, because they're trying to put out everything on Blu-ray. Now.
1: Yeah. yeah. And it, uh, so you're kind of seeing all this stuff again because that's part of the business model. Shout takes stuff that you go, okay, I don't even know who the audience for this is. And they go, we don't care we're going to have commentaries we're going to find every single extra we can we're going to do things like the Vincent Price box set they did recently which for me is the best box set of the year i don't think anything comes close wow because it was it's beautiful it's obscure films that people can really get into you know it's six six films four discs laden with extras everything they could possibly find from Vincent Price's career during that time they just throw it on there and it's like you know this is lovely Crawl Space is definitely one of those ones where you go, "Who woke up one morning and went, you know what, lads? God damn it, we need to get the rights to Crawl Space. We need to acquire that.'" Because I wonder
0: if three it, people. Somebody saw like like Nosferatu with Koskinski, which I believe was re-released relatively recently, and went, "God, that Koskinski guy! I forgot how creepy he is." Let's look at his IMDb page. What else was he in? Holy shit, he did a horror movie in 1986 called Crawl Space. I didn't even know <laughs> that. And I'm actually really glad they rediscovered this. It is Kansky is one of the creepiest people, both in real life and in whatever role he's playing that yep. has ever lived <laughs> and even though this is a pretty simplistic storyline, I mean a guy who owns a, a a big building that he'll only rent to young attractive females and there's a he crawls through the the air conditioning ducts and has little mechanics in there he can operate things in their rooms so he can spy on them and and then basically do mean things like let rats loose in their house and stuff and event every once in a while takes one and, and kidnaps and tortures and murders them. It's, you know, it sounds like your pretty standard eighties fair, if you will, yeah. from the horror movie, but it is so elevated by both Klaus Kinski, who is, he may be the craziest person who ever worked in film. Oh yeah! I mean, he's there's even a bonus feature on here that's all about how the director almost murdered him, like almost lost his mind and just said, "It's not worth it. I'm going to kill Costigan." Well, uh, yeah, it, uh, <laughs> but, David but, Schmola, who who did this, and
1: is probably most famous uh, for any good reason. Uh,
0: for doing the first Puppet Master movie. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. And this is, is also a Charles Band production. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for whatever that's worth. <laughs> yeah. And it, oh, and Tourist Trap, which is actually quite interesting. Oh, good yeah. As she well. did Tourist
1: Trap which yeah. is, which is just weird. Yeah. That is a very strange little film. It's that fun, is, though. It's, he was working through some issues. And there's a lot of, of what, of uh, Tourist Trap in here because there's a lot of, of the same kind of gimmick of like it's a weird house and horrible stuff is happening. It's a cool he, house at, oh, at it's, points. Oh, it's, and uh, I don't know what the rent is, but you know. You know, if I was looking for an apartment, I'd go. You know what? Minor <laughs> risk of getting killed by you know, the the son of a Nazi surgeon.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, but I mean, look at those views, and the windows are huge. I mean, what are the utilities on this place? It's a trade off. There's a the director does some really interesting things with this as well. One of my favorites being this interstitial moment every time after. Klaus Kinski kills someone he there's a scene in with a a black and white checkerboard room and floor and a white table on top of it where he sits with a gun and like Russian roulette's himself and then you know it'll be it'll obviously clicks on an empty barrel otherwise it wouldn't be much of a movie and it goes so be it yes and you're like wow that is creepy and effective and every time he does it one more time than the last time and this plays into a nice series of like chapter endings all the way through the movie all the way to the end but even more so than that, there's a bit of like, there's a bit of like this being a precursor to Saw almost in yeah. some ways. That this oh, yeah. whole place is outlaid with crazy traps.
1: It's and... really obviously an influence on Saw. It's a big, it, uh, I don't think you would have had Evil Dead Trap without yeah. this. <laughs> God, I would see it. that a lo- so long. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but they, I mean, you can really feel like yeah. you know, somebody went, because Evil Dead Trap was like two years later. And I'm sure somebody must have gone, we can take the ideas from this and put in weird fetuses. Baby killer yeah.
0: monster thing. And just put the word right uh, "evil Dead on and, it so everyone will rent it anyway. Yeah, and <laughs>
1: voila. Um, but yeah, I mean, and this really—you watch for Kinski. Like every other yeah. character is utterly disposable. I'm sure that Literally. some of the costumes. Oh yeah, I'm sure that some <laughs> of the costumes I've actually seen in other Charles Band films. I mean, it's it's you know this is him at his you know lowest budget schlock and, and shock nonsense, but. From moment one, and this is one of the things I think is so great, This other films you go, well, who's the bad guy? And it's like, they hired Klaus Kinski. You know it's him. Of course it's Kinski. Yeah, of course
0: it's Kinski. <laughs> was being... there any chance he was going to end up being the romantic lead? No, yeah, and it's
1: this not. brief period where after he kind of stopped working with Werder Herzog, because I think even Herzog would gone, ah, oh, I hate you. I hate you. And the next time we film something, we're going to go in the Amazon. I'm just going to push you off a mountain. We are going to go up into the back end of Peru. I'm going to kill you. Even I am done with you. Um, and it's... Yeah, but he's so crazy good in this. And from moment one, you're like, nope, he's a nutter. And you're just going, how crazy is he going to get? And he'll suddenly... you know, He'll go from like, calm and controlled and surgical and just like, no, I'm going to do this thing. And then go... I'm gonna cover my face in lipstick and put on a Nazi hat <laughs> and, just like, and just like goose step around for no good reason. <laughs> I just like- I was like, where are you going with this? He plainly didn't care. But Kinski not caring is still so much better and more entertaining and more enthralling than a lot of people giving it their all.
0: That's the thing. Is like, especially when I watch this extra called Please Kill Mr. Kinski. Ah. You, you really have to get this for that, if nothing yeah. else. It's only 10 minutes long. It's a nice accompaniment to have ever seen Werner Herzog's My Best Fiend. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, which is about his working relationship with Kinski. It's, Kinski hates directors, and he wants nothing to do with them. If he agreed to do the film, he read the script and said, now I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want to. And it's just, you know, watching where everyone else is very polite, everyone else is doing their job, but they're all mediocre as hell actors. Kinski won't do a goddamn thing anyone tells him to. He will just... Absolutely, like one day he'll say, do this or I'm not going to do it. And I'll go, okay, fine, we'll do this. And the next day he goes, God, why are you doing that? Do this entirely other thing. It's like he's insane and incredibly difficult to work with. And turns in this performance that like, is so much better than the film he's actually in.
1: One of the other extras is um the uh, visual effects director yeah. talking about working with Kinsky. And he was like, Oh, it's so frustrating because he'd get bored halfway through doing a prosthetic and walk off. And he'd be like, well, how am I supposed to do this? And he said, well, it's all right because, you know, he doesn't do close-ups. You're going to have to get a different hand to do the close-ups. And I'm like, like, well, why do we even bother? It's like, "Uh, whatever. just Just let him go. And... I mean, this is a film where at one point the producers were thinking of putting an insurance policy on him and having him killed for the cash because they'd make more than the film would. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I
0: mean, they they talk about that in overtly, all seriousness. Yeah. Like r- they really had a discussion about it. Yeah, and, it,
1: and it's uh, and it's a terrible film that is still worth watching, which is one of those great contradictions. I think it's something that shout understand they understand those films that like there's something so magical you know it's a real diamond in a pile of crap yeah thing. like you, you know you're wading through crap and as long as you come in going you know what I'll put some gloves on. But when you find that wonderful thing, and in here it is Kinski's performance, it is some of the traps which come out. The final chase sequence where he's hunting down the last girl, oh, yeah. uh,
0: through the house, is actually pretty effective. Yeah, um, it's, it, you're tense watching it, yeah. because this is the type of film that could go either way.
1: Yeah. And it, uh, by the way, the title is a lie, There there is no crawl space. It should actually be called Heating Vent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cause he's, and it, but, you know, he's kind of wandering through, uh, the these vents and it keeps adding things in where you go he's really thought about this and it's not like <laughs> it shows you X in the first five minutes and you know it's going to pay off there's one point where he's crawling through the duct and suddenly goes I don't want to crawl through the duct presses a switch and suddenly a little trolley drops down yeah, so he can just pull himself through yeah, why like, weren't you
0: using that in the beginning like,
1: <laughs> it does this kind of thing that it just really throws you and it's like it's brilliant and terrible at the same time and David Schmoller is not a great director. In fact, I, I, I was talking to um, Lewis Black, the the uh, publisher, the publisher, editor of The Chronicle, uh, and my, my boss in my day job, uh, about this. And he knows him. He said, no, yeah, um, uh, Please Kill Mr. Kinski is the best thing he ever did. And it's just David Schmoller sat there going, oh, God, he was so awful. In fact, in a fair and just universe, uh, this should be a disc entitled... Please Kill Mr. Kinski and Crawl Space should be included as an it extra because it's really where the joy
0: of this is. <laughs> yeah, I almost say watch Please Mr. Kinski first. Yes. And then you're going to like this movie even much more. Then you're going to go, oh. But I mean, like I said, that being said, Kinski is so good in it oh. and he's in it constantly. You're going to have fun watching this bad movie. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on to our next title, which is another horror film from Scream Factory, which is called The Beast Within. Now, which I
1: haven't seen, I think, since it came out, probably. So. It's
0: weird this wasn't actually technically an Ozploitation film. It looked like it may have started that way. <laughs> and then they decided somebody picked it up here and said, no, 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 we're going to produce this. Uh, because the guy who made this actually was very, I mean, did the Howling 2 and 3, uh, and various other, uh, films that are. Quality, sp- quality quality, quality. He also
1: had a, a, seemed to have a good career in Nazi exploitation as well, which That's is the like, thing. it's a, it's, it's an industry.
0: <laughs> but this one actually has, uh, Ronnie Cox and, uh, oh God, what is her name, uh, who plays the, uh, uh, is it really it says it's BB Besh. I thought it was uh the girl from The Howling, it looked like her. Who plays the uh uh the, the mother?
1: I, I don't know. I've not watched this this since puberty, so you know. Okay, yeah,
0: it says it it says it's B.B. Besh, but I'm like, really? Uh anyway, th- these two, Ronnie Cox, of course, you've seen in a billion different movies, including like Robocop and stuff like that. Uh they're driving through Mississippi when their car's stuck in the mud. Uh, she he goes okay. Well, we just passed a gas station. I'll just walk down to it while she's there. Big monstrous thing. We never really get a good look at. Basically, <laughs> comes at her. Uh, pulls off. Pulls our, Yeah, pulls our clothes off, rapes her, and then takes off. Um, as you do. Probably Kinsky. Yeah, probably Klaus Kinsky. It sounds like something Kinski would have done. He was a little kinky. Kinsky was kinky. Kinski? Kinky. Kinsky. I can't say it. I can't. You cannot. It. The tongue will not let you uh make a portmanteau of those two things i've just had a horrible thought <laughs> Kinsky friedman oh that's a yeah that's a really terrifying for governor
1: <laughs> <laughs> Klaus kinski in an, old, in an old very smelly cowboy hat no 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 throwing cigars be... at your head and demanding no, that you buy
0: salsa no one should never have no one should ever have <laughs> thought of that that's terrible you're going to have to go get some mental floss delete, or something. delete. <laughs> uh anyway he comes back like oh my god years later they have a kid he's very sick it's very clear that the, right off the bat that this kid is actually the child of whatever it was that that uh, raped her and not of him, which he doesn't want to accept. So they decide, well, it might be genetic. Let's go back to the small town and try and find out who this guy was who assaulted her. Maybe we can find something about what actually is going on here because they don't know what the problem is. Uh, meanwhile, while they're going around and interviewing people, the kid escapes and is obviously fighting with this other personality inside of him. So – it's really kind of a werewolf film, ultimately. Yep. I mean, it really is. I mean, it does everything that a werewolf film does without it actually being a werewolf, you know? Yeah. I mean, literally at one point <laughs> it d- has a... It doesn't n- say the were word. yeah Yeah, exactly. But other than that, I mean, he literally physically transforms into a monster at one yeah. point in this film. Like, special prosthetic effects and all, because that's the genetic curse he's got going on. Curses. <laughs> and it's a cool scene for what, as goofy as it is, it's yep. just kind of one of those, like, you know... There's a reason why Hollywood sometimes cuts away quicker because <laughs> from these moments, you're like, yeah, guys, that just looks like a dude with a air bladder underneath a Halloween mask at points. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's some fun to be had with this film. I think ultimately it, it jumps around a lot from feeling like a procedural almost at points. We're like, Oh, let's research this information when you're like, If you were just watching the kid, you would learn everything you needed to know, pretty much. But no. (laughs) And the kid, of course, is forming a relationship with a young, hot chick, a hot, very naive chick who's willing to make out with him pretty much the first time she meets him. And uh, where are we those... else would you go to Louisiana? Where were those nice southern girls when I was move... growing up?
1: Aww. Yeah, I know. They
0: were like holding hands about as far as I ever got. Aww. I know that accent.
1: Damn. Maybe you should have transformed into the... into not a werewolf. <laughs> yeah, that probably would have helped. Ah, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, you take what you want if you're not a werewolf, and no one can call it rape because what are you supposed to do? It's in his nature. It's... <sighs> <laughs> 80s horror was pretty rapey. It, well, yeah, and I guess you could say that in some ways uh, some other cultures out there that are doing horror now are, are still channeling that. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. But 80s American horror, like, this is, like, you know, it kind of, you you almost expected it in a film like this, like, somebody's going to get raped by a monster. It's like, why does this happen so much at that point? I'm not quite sure I think, I why think that it, period of American horror was just like,
0: yep. It feels weird in – compared to now, because now it's so – if a character is going to be raped in the film, there has to be a very good reason for it inside the film or people are going to cry foul. Yeah. They're going to go, that is – like, rape isn't something you should use for exploitation purposes, right? I understand that. I completely do. Nobody was shouting that in yeah. the 80s. <laughs> and it was just another way to scare people and freak them out. Yeah. You know, I I don't honestly – I try not to have an opinion about that. I see people watch these movies and they get all offended. I'm like, look, it was the 80s. Once again, no one was shouting that's inappropriate yeah. at the time. <laughs> you know, I still think if you're using it for scare factor, for some people it works just fine, for other people you are going to be offended.
1: I actually asked Abel Ferrara about this because they've just re-released Miss 45. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I asked him about that and said, you know, I mean, but weren't you worried that, you've got a your two rape sequences in the first ten minutes of this film, and he went, you know when I made this, the two films I'd done before were a porn and driller killer. <laughs> I really didn't have any concerns about what people
0: thought about my films at all anyway. Yeah, that's funny that, I mean, such different, we're in such different time now. That yeah. Like only stuff that doesn't even plan on attempting to get a wide theatrical release on any level can get away with that type of filmmaking anymore. Yeah. Because everyone is so quick to point fingers at anything that even potentially could be considered offensive to any one group or person or what have you. Is that better or worse? Yeah. I, it's such a weird, slippery slope of a question yeah, to it's, say, yeah. you know? Uh, the,
1: but this gets away with it in part because it's a not werewolf. Yeah. So you kind of, like, you know, you push the, you know, this will get into, you know, you can be as gory as it wants, and it's going to get into cinemas that, say, a Serbian
0: film uh, isn't, as in cinemas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? You don't need to see a Serbian film, for the record.
1: I... Well, I'm one of these people. Like, people have asked me because I saw the original uncut version. Oh, good lord! There's an uh, uncut version. There's an uncut version. Uh, it's about ten minutes longer. Uh. Uh, yeah, that, I had to squeegee my eyes after that. And various people have said to me, uh, "Is it good?" And I've yeah, you know, I've had to say on a person by person basis, "You you can watch it. You really don't need to watch it. You don't <laughs> need that in your head." I mean, I think it's a it's a great, brilliant political satire because. Um, I've got family that lives in the Balkans, and I know a lot of the, the political background. And I go, "This is a political commentary." Beast um, Within, not so much. Not a political commentary, unless the political commentary is, "Don't go to Louisiana." Uh, At least not in the '80s, anyway. Yeah. Apparently, where, or where, the '60s. Where it's, I mean, it's lovely now, but really back then, it really was like you know, every everywhere in the South was just, you know, it's the South. Don't <laughs> just just don't you know, you know clearly which side of the mason dixon you want to be on so can you believe this is actually based on a novel I think no I think it's based on a book I don't think we could probably say it's a novel I think novel is is giving it a gravitas
0: and a kudos that it probably hasn't earned yeah you're probably right (laughs) uh and and this was surprising it was one of those ones that got a wide release but honestly it's okay it's okay and the film score was actually well thought of by it was the last one by Les Baxter Ah. uh, who thought it was one of the best ones he ever did actually apparently James Horner was rumored to have contributed to it as well uh but Did it have that, that same sting
1: that James Horner puts in absolutely everything? Dun, go, dun,
2: dun, the, the,
1: which I, just, I discovered because i got a friend who is a huge James Horner completist. And everybody refers to it as the Aliens sting. And he said, right. no, actually, he reused it in Aliens from something else. And he just keeps reusing this one thing. So everybody goes, it's a James Horner score. I recognize because it's got that Aliens sting. Alien sting. And it's like, no, it's actually older than that. So it's probably in here somewhere. It, it, we can prove whether it really is. Let's go and see... Whether we go, that's from Aliens. Oh yeah, James Horner did it. Yeah, score, just have so. one of
0: those like things that uh, reads music on your phone, that tells you <laughs> what song it is. But that's program just to look for the James Horner sting. You <laughs> just leave it on when you're watching movies. Like, oh look, James Horner contributed to this score. <laughs> uh, anyway, not a lot in the in the way of bonus features on this one. Actually, they kind of left this one down with a few radio spots, original trailer, and two audio commentaries, which I guess is nice if you're one of those people who likes to listen to commentaries on even the the B minus films that you own.
1: Sometimes they can be the best thing about... about uh, when when Shout Factory put out The Burning a while ago, and the commentaries on that are phenomenal. And are well, they? Okay.
0: Well worth... I did not listen to those. I'm they're afraid. very entertaining. Uh, all right, well, let's move on to our next horror movie, which is a very different kind of horror film, which comes from IFC, which, yes, that means you have to think about it a bit. Sorry. <laughs> uh, called Barbarian... Is Barbarian? Bur- Barbarian Sound, Sound Studio. Studio. Yes. Uh, what an odd concept for a film, starring Toby Jones, who... Is this the first time? This is maybe the second time he's ever been the leading guy in a movie, right? Yeah, uh, You know, I think he was in... He was Hitchcock in that... Uh, alternate version of, uh. Yes. I can't remember what it was called. The, was, it was that one actually called Hitchcock? No, 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 no. It was called something else, but it was about that same. Relationship. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Uh, and then. He al- out, they were all the same thing. Didn't he also, he also played Truman Capote? Yes, he yeah. did. And, uh, not Capote, but whatever the other one was that came yeah. out that not as many people saw. But a lot of people said it was better, much like the Hitchcock one. Mm-hmm. Toby Jones is a great actor, though, that you don't, you know, he's, he's a little dwarfy guy. He's like, he's very hobbity. You know, you don't put him in the lead role for stuff. And here he's perfectly cast as a guy who's... He's a Foley artist and like a master Foley artist. The guy who does all the sound effects and works in the studio to make all the music and sound sounds just right in the right places for films. But who's been flown out to Italy under false presumption... Like, that he was working on more uh, just an equestrian film, but it turns out it's, in fact, a horror film. It's, like, where the director points out at one point point, like, well, it is an equestrian film. Look, she's riding a horse there right yep. before she gets killed. <laughs> 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 uh, and he's very out of place. Yeah. Like, here. Like, even though the director, every time he sees him, is just blowing smoke up his ass built laced with sugar. Yeah. Uh, everyone else is just horrible to him. Just like, why are you here? Talking shit about him behind his back. And he is so uncomfortable. And what you've got is a slowly growing horror film that you're not really sure what's really happening and what's not at points that never actually shows you the horror moments. Yeah. Everything is kind of from the viewpoint of people who put horror films together. Like, there are points we can hear the movie they're making and see the light of it screening, but we don't actually see the, the film itself. Yeah. I admit that while this film had me growing interest as I was going along like what is going on here it's one of those films that ultimately goes at the end as like and I really have trouble sometimes with movies that leave it so completely ambiguous that there's there there's almost not a discernible answer to be had
1: I love this film I like, love this film because it is utterly experimental. It really it is. It is so layered. I mean, it, it's something that the first time I saw it, I went, I don't know whether I like this or not because I'm still trying to process it and I had to go back and watch it again and it was like killing me that it took so long for it to come out on DVD because <laughs> uh, it showed at Fantastic Fest 2012, I want to believe. Oh God, I want was, to
0: it, say. was it? Okay, yeah, yeah it did because that was when I was uh, not there.
1: And so. I, I loved it then and I come back and watched it again and I'm like, you know, more in love with it. You know, as it seeped in, I was like, God, this gets better and better and better. It's, you know, the influences, Kenneth Anger is is a huge influence um, on this. Uh, You know, stuff like Zen 2 Noughts by Peter Greenaway, that kind of stuff in there. This is a very, very 80s movie in a lot of ways. It's very, you know, even, and it's not from a cinematic tradition, the whole thing is about sound. It is about being in a studio. It's very technical. Everything is filled with references. All the actors, apart from Toby Jones, I, so many of them actually aren't actors. They come from a a an experimental sound and an experimental music background. So there's this wonderful sequence where they're um, they're shooting, they're, they're recording the sound, the voiceover of um, this. Again, because it's a 70s slash 80s period piece, it's another rape scene. Uh, But it's a (laughs) goblin trying to rape uh, a girl at this equestrian um, school. And you don't see any of it because, like, like you said, everything is happening on screen, is happening off screen, Yeah. basically. And you just see this guy in the booth making these unearthly goblin noises. And you know the fact that they that he they say he's a goblin shows you know for one of the first influences they're talking about Giallo and Goblin sure. the the band, but you know, you watch him and you are just like this is incredible and he is you know one of the most respected experimental vocalists there is you know the fact that the studio is called Barbarian Sound Studio is after Kathy Barbarian who was an avant-garde uh, vocal performer I think she's still she may still be alive and everything is filled with these little things that make you go. I didn't understand that. If you go away and do a huge amount of research, this is a film you can sit and watch and be blown away by how weird and strange and beautiful it is, and how great Toby Jones is, is as this kind of this put upon little schlub who may or may not be real. You know, nothing yeah. about this is set and solid. I mean, it feels like a remix.
0: I mean, even to the point where, like, the only time we ever actually see footage of the film. We're not really sure if we're even watching the film, or scenes of what's happening in his life, or a dream he's having about being in the film. The only time we see anything that appears to be the movie, he's in it. Yes, <laughs> as one of
1: the characters. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a phenomenal period piece as well because it doesn't just it catches something very specific about the British bore abroad, abroad in the nineteen seventies that they're kind of afraid of foreign food and they don't understand it, Uh and Italy is a very very long way away. And he keeps getting these letters from his mum uh, about these chaffinches, which have uh, taken up residence in uh, the um barn. Yeah, it, it, well, no, it's in his shed because he does all his work in his shed. Oh, right, right. Um, and he's, you know, all this—he's got all his recording equipment from home, and he's listening to the sound of his of his his back garden. And you know, it's it's so perfect in catching that period. And that's really, you know, there's something astonishing just about how accurately it recreates, you know, velour and velour suits and everybody's smoking all the time. Oh, constantly.
0: Um, and, it, you know, I. Except for him, who is so, once again, constantly out of place.
1: Yeah. And he's, he's there, they're all there eating pasta and he's there with these small sandwiches. You know, it, it's really, it's a film I could probably watch three or four times again in the next week and get something different from every wow. time. Um uh, the commentary track, absolutely, absolutely listen to the commentary track. We're discussing, you know, whether they can, you know, the value of them sometimes. And you. the director doesn't tell you what the film is about, but he says, okay, here's a clue. And here's another clue. And here's another hint. And here's another suggestion. And watch for these beats and watch for these rhythms. And still says, you have to work at this film.
0: Right, um, and I don't. I like a puzzle film, Oh. and I've only seen this the once. Yeah, and I unfortunately was watching this once again late. I wasn't tired, but I had to have the sound a little bit further down than yeah. I probably should have for a film called Barbarian Sound Studio. Oh, so blasting! Watching the subtitles,
1: <laughs> particularly because the, there's some moments where the sound, yeah, the volume just goes through the roof, and it's meant to hit you. And it's 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 I when I've talked about this before, I said the 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 thing people forget about modern cinema is that modern cinema is about vision and sound. And so many films about the history of cinema, you know, stuff like Hugo, they, they talk about the visuals. And they kind of forget that the big, what has really changed as much as anything else, you know, is is the sound and what you can do with sound. And, you know, you watch a film with a good THX setup and it's, it's a completely different experience completely to watching it with some bad Dolby down at the front. You yeah, know, and I good surround. Tell
0: people it's so cheap and easy to set yourself up with at least a basic surround, not yeah. even a 7-1 or anything, but yeah. you know. And it changes. The and film. it changes your entire experience of watching a movie completely.
1: Yeah. I remember the first time I saw something with really good surround in, in, in the cinema and I was like, holy crap. And like, you know, that's why, you know, they, the, the magic seat. In any cinema, is center seat two thirds of the way back Hmm. Uh, because that's where, when THX and everybody else sends their sound guy, uh, sound folks out to configure the 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 stereo, that's where they sit. Right, and that is the magic point. It's also like the perspective on the screen. That's where, if you can get that inside knowledge, folks, if you can get (laughs) that seat, go there because the the film will never look better than Hmm. it does that moment. It will never sound better, Hmm. and you know, films aren't films aren't silent anymore. No. no, well,
0: except for the artist. But.
1: Well, yeah, but even even that's not. You know, <laughs> yeah, there's a moment, is, but
0: not. Um... I, I, I will say. I think that this is for a very select audience, oh, to be yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, you yes. should know that by now by hearing this. I mean, it's really, like, if you really like Giallo a lot, this is interesting that it's about sort of, like, that period of time. Uh, you know, behind the scenes, really, but in a dream logic sort of way. And it does talk about, like, you know, the, how the people who made that films were artists and whores at the same time. Oh, totally. The yeah, guy's but- like, the director at one point said, don't ever call my film horror. It's not that simple. And then the very next scene calls his own film horror. Yeah. <laughs> it's... You, you're you just, you're kind of up your own ass, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we've got to move on. Uh I know that uh, it seems like there's much more you could say about this one.
1: Oh, uh, just, just waylay me at a bar and I'll and give me a pint and I'll be like, another thing. <laughs> one more thing. Let me tell you something else. Uh oh uh, for anybody who by the way who's still wondering uh who Toby Jones is, if you don't know because we named some obscure stuff, uh he played Armin uh, Zola, the um the evil scientist in, in Captain, Captain America. America the First Avenger. Yeah. But he's also one of the uh the guys providing commentary um in
0: um uh oh Catching Fire. Oh see, I haven't seen it. Uh well he's in the first one as well. Um, um Doctor Who fans, he is the dream lord in yes. the episode Amy's yeah. Choice. and he, but he, he was he's the in, voice of Dobby the house elf in the Harry Potter films. Uh, yeah, we can't hold that against him. But yeah, he's also <laughs> in the Hunger
1: games, but he's he's the one who's wearing the the terrible white um the white wig. That looks like he mugged Will Ferrell's right. character in Zoolander, um, uh, I, I, the, and he looks ashamed to be in that film. I really, the, he really has this element of like, I, you know, this
0: is a really great film, and I look like a cretin in it. The Truman Capote film was infamous that I was thinking ah, of, and the yes. Alfred Hitchcock film was The Girl. Don't get that mixed up. There's another film that came out, I believe, the same year called The Girl. It's a very different movie. <laughs> uh, but you know, he was in The Mist, W. Frost Nixon, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He's a very good actor, so. Worth a look for his performance, certainly, if no other reason. Let's talk about a film that is more questionable about whether or not it's worth a look, and that is The Rooftops. All you, buddy. Uh, certainly one of the, I, even Odder doesn't really do it justice, because it's not one of those films that's just setting out to be odd. This is a Taiwanese film that came out in 2013, directed by Jay Chow. Who came might, out or escaped? Uh, no, well, it, the thing is, like, he in, in Taiwan is considered to be an auteur. He made this movie, apparently, uh, that was a monster hit at festivals across the world and there as well that he's apparently written something like eight sequels to, uh, <laughs> that haven't been actually produced yet. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what the name of it is right now. It's like one word. It's like the sing, what's it called? I don't, that's his discography. Uh, it was called Secret. It came out in 2007. Apparently a very twisty time travel film. Uh, he's also known as an actor. He played Cato in the American Green Hornet is probably where you would recognize him from, uh, as well as in a number of better known Asian films like Curse of the Golden Flower and True Legend and stuff like that. But this is him sort of going out with his sophomore effort as a do everything guy, writer, director, producer, wrote the soundtrack, lead actor, all that. And he wants to make a musical old school Hollywood style. You know, like sort of like sixty, more 60s Hollywood. Like it's very not Asian at all in that context, except that there are, are big martial arts fights that appear sometimes while they're singing. So it's
1: kind of the reverse of a Bollywood movie it where is. in a Bollywood movie, they'll, you know, they're about to have a fight and it turns into a dance routine. Yeah. Here, a dance routine turns into a fight. Exactly. Yeah. Uh,
0: and, and in fact, it's much less Uh, Like, a Bollywood film is a musical that's very own, its own style musical. I would never compare those to the way of Hollywood musicals. Bollywood is more like a music video suddenly interrupts a movie you're watching. Yes. uh, With the dance sequences and the music. This is more of the whole thing. Everything is all integrated into one big thing. Like, they don't go off to an imaginary visual area. They are da- singing and dancing in the confines of the space that the story is being told completely. So it's more like Umbrellas of Cherbourg with more fighting. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> uh, now, the biggest problem with this, which is actually a very in- inventively set up, it's very colorful, it's very beautiful to look at at points, it's neatly edited, it's got cool special effects, and even very catchy songs, although very short. It's got like those Disney musical level songs, or <sighs> like they're under a minute, and you're like really? <laughs> I was just starting to get into that. But the biggest problem is that the story is just kind of, eh. It's a little too over-familiar. The idea of the rooftop is part where the, the, the lower class citizens live, but they live happily. It's this huge series of roofs that are attached and have big, colorful paper lanterns, and everyone barbecues up there every night, and they sing and dance and enjoy their simple lives. But there's this one billboard in the background of this beautiful actress that our lead character in here, played by Jay Chow, has always been in love with he's like had that secret affection for this woman who was completely unobtainable part she's this new actress coming out but she is she is part of this one percent she's you know little innocent still but yeah but when he gets a chance to actually meet her they fall in love gradually over space but there's other people who don't want her to fall in love with them because it'll hurt her film career somebody else really likes her there's multiple gangs vying for control over this part of the city as well underneath a gang leader it, it gets a little complicated on the outside, but on the inside, there's actually a pretty basic story that never really goes anywhere all that interesting. Aww. I mean, I will say the bookends of it, there's a beginning and end bookend. In the beginning, you're like, what does this have to do with the rest of the movie? And then you find out at the end, that's kind of like, okay, well, that actually is a little bit tear jerky. But um, they actually kind of work. Just overall, you're watching this for... Uh, all right, so someone who doesn't like Moulin Rouge, who goes like, this is not my kind of movie at all, at least has to admit that a lot of in- innovation went into oh, the yeah. look of the thing. Go, wow, it's certainly something that's colorful and pretty to watch. And that's just Nicole Kidman. <laughs> Indeed. Uh I feel that way about this. It's not a good movie. But it's one of those you can put on in the background and every once in a while go, "Ha! Ah, look at that. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You can't get too deep into it because nothing in this film is, in fact, deep at all it's very shallow in fact but there's so many funny little performances i gotta I always forget this guy's name here uh he's this is one guy who you see in martial arts films all the time the little short guy who looks like he should not be in martial arts films <laughs> usually he plays a comedic role here he does too he's like one of the bosses there uh and he is so funny in this thing and there are other people too turn in good roles but Ultimately, like I said, every time there's a song and dance number, when it, just when it's starting to get going, it's over. Ah. And you're like, what is that? What is that? I mean, like, there's one song and dance routine in here that they're literally beating up like 30 guys in the length of it, but it's also wonderfully choreographed in tune where even the hits are like the beats of the music. You're like, that is cool. Yeah. But it's over like that. Like, okay, that was, there's just not enough. It's just not well thought out enough to be anything but kind of a almost ran. You know, some, like, good idea, but you probably need to, you're too young to be an auteur, maybe. Is this one of those rare instances where a film could actually have afforded to be longer? No, it's pretty long already. Oh. Uh, it just needed to lose a lot and be replaced with more more focus. It's yeah. very ADD. It just constantly gets bored with what it's doing and moves on to the next thing, you know. So, yeah, I can't really recommend it as such, except for people who are curious either about Jay Chow, who is genuinely a really interesting guy and a talented guy, or people who just got to see every musical ever made. (laughs) Uh, It's not quite as goofy and fun as it should be, but this could be the very – this could be – I mean, considering how well-received his first film is – and how much he said he wants to keep doing musicals, I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe the next one, maybe the one after that, being a genuinely great movie. Yeah. This one is not it, though. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh. All right. So another film, I'm sorry. Another one I don't think you saw is Adore is our next film. Yeah. Again, missed this one. Uh, you know. Great cover. Did you ever see Summer Lovers? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, here you go. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, reminded me so much of it. This is a 2013 Australian French drama film uh, based on a novella by. British... You're selling
1: me on it already. I know. I know.
0: Based on a novella by a British writer called "The Grandmothers." Uh, which, believe me, Adore is a better title, because the grandmothers, you just feel creepy the whole time. But the idea here is that Robin Wright and Naomi Watts live in basically paradise, uh like this house, beautiful houses, right by the water. Like, it's always, weather's always wonderful and beautiful. Oh. Uh, and they live there both with their 19, 20-something-year-old sons, and they've been best friends since they were little girls, and their sons grew up together as best friends. And one of their uh, uh, Robin Wright and her husband are growing apart and he basically leaves as well. I'm, I'm gone. And you can see what's happening. Well, without even the trailer ahead of time, you can see is there's a little bit too much affection across the board with these, the boys and their alternate mothers, if you yeah. will, they grew up with until sure enough, they're both fucking each other's mom. <laughs> Not at all awkward. Not at all awkward. Well, the thing is like most of this film is them being fine with it. Like, like, at first, like, no, no, we can't do that again. And 20 seconds later, they're like, oh, 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 oh let's do it again. Because, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, honestly, if Naomi – I was in that position with Naomi Watts, you know, uh, fuck convention.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be – Not related. Yeah, not related. Nothing technically wrong nothing with it. Nothing technically wrong. And there's a lot of that where it's like you're watching them do it and all pretend that there's no reason anything sh- anyone should think anything's wrong with this. Well, they all know – something, you know, the other shoe's going to drop. And it yeah. starts to drop in the term of, like, the boy's starting to meet other girls their own age. And then tensions rise and da 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 And it ends up at a place you really will not see coming at the end of this. And I don't mean, like, oh, it gets all Hitchcocky and everyone starts murdering each other. I don't mean that at all. I mean, it It makes a, a very weird moral decision towards the end that's going to get under some people's craw and other people will go, like, yeah, why not? Yeah, But... I think the thing going – strongest thing going for this film directed by Anne Fontaine is that it's beautiful to look at. The cinematography is gorgeous. It's a place you'd want to live and people who really like MILF pornography. <laughs> <laughs> it, that's, you are kind of selling it as, as art house MILF. You know? Uh, you know, the funny thing is like the sex scenes are actually extremely tame. They're like there's no real nudity. There's a bit of man butt and that's about it. Um, it's not selling. You're losing our audience quick. quick. Yeah, it's not selling itself like Summer Lovers was, which where it was like, look, boobies. And, and like on HBO when you're 13, yay, let's see more of that. No, it's, there's really none of that. You're not going to see Naomi Watson and Robin Wright walking around naked having crazy sex. It's not one of those movies. It's an art house film, 100% about like, what if this happened? And it's not going to happen. So I don't know why we really, like, how many people will ever find themselves in this circus, this extremely rarefied and particular set of circumstances to where it could affect them in any way shape or form (laughs) i don't know it's hard to realize what were we supposed to identify with here yeah i mean i've i had sex with a much older woman when i was like God, about 19, 18 or 19. Uh, and it was wonderful. And she taught me a bunch of things. And then when she found out how well I got along with her 14-year-old son, she was like, okay, this is got to stop. <laughs> <laughs> this is just freaking me out. <laughs> we, can't, we can't have this. So I guess that's the best as I can come to identifying with this. Ultimately, like I said, good performances by everyone involved uh, on the whole. I thought one of the young sons is a little too broody for his own good. He's hoping to get in whatever comes after Twilight, I suspect. <laughs> but –
1: and Robin Wright does seem to be on a bit of a resurgence at the moment. I well, think and, people are, are good. Guys, she's really
0: good. We'd kind of forgotten about her. Yeah, well, she did kind of fall into the background while she was married to Sean Penn. Yeah. You know? She kind of let Sean Penn take the lead on that one. Yeah. Uh, and now she wants to be in lots of stuff, and she's a great actor. She has that sort of very old-school Hollywood presence thing yeah. going for her. Like, she's kind of regal, almost. And I
1: think that kind of hurt her for a while, because people didn't want that. and Now she's reached an i think a the the needle's swinging a bit back that way but b yeah. i think she's reaching the age where she, those roles are there for her yeah um you know so i think you know it's probably i, I, I think the next few years you know post house of
0: cards um you M- know, we I mean, might see her get a role that's going to get her a best actress at least nomination at yeah. some point coming up soon because she's got getting that age she's exactly the right age where she's still gorgeous but she can play like a, that perfect age group for women where they do get those best
1: And Maggie nods. Smith can't last forever. No, no, no.
0: Dame Judi Dench can't last forever. <laughs> Don't tell Hollywood they'll cry. <laughs> I, I, I'm crying just thinking about it. Hell, I'm crying just thinking about Philomena, but that's neither here nor yeah, there. Okay. I mean, we'll review that some other time. <laughs> anyway, honestly, this should... It's not that it should have been better. It is what it is. There's nothing wrong with it. What It doesn't do anything wrong along the way. It's just kind of what, who are you selling this to? Like, who is this for? And I do have to ask, actually, is Naomi Watts old enough to have a son? Well, you question it, because she still looks really young, but she is should be the right age, I think, really. She got a late start. She's 45 years old. Really? Yeah. And they even explained in there at one point that she was really young when she had kids. She kid. does anyway, not look... She looks terrific. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Is that and... distracting that you go, hang on, I, that, I, I, as I mentioned myself, I would totally have sex with Naomi Watts no tomorrow. That's, what that's age a different question. So, yeah. That is a totally different question. I found it distracting questions. in that sense. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, that I was like, yeah, I'd, yeah, do it. I'm rooting for anyone to tap Naomi Watts in this movie. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's okay. Talk about squeegeeing my eyes I know, like well, oh, uh, your Q-tip your ears with bleach. <laughs> Alright, so let's move on to what is the last title we've got for you today. Aww. I'm sorry. Oh. Uh, and that is and I'm sorry we gotta end on kind of a bummer anyway, but it'll be fun to talk about oy, oy. the family. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually based on a novel that the French novel that's translated as Bad Fellas, which should tell you a lot about what they were going Is it through. a gangster movie? <laughs> Is it? Is it? I I don't know. It's kind of... It's like when you watch Analyze This, right? Yeah. And you're like, wow, this is like Rob De Niro just taking a lifetime of playing these type of roles and, and... and just satirizing it in a way that was actually kind of funny that was later done much better by The Sopranos. Yeah. You know, um, this is him yeah. oh, satirizing. When, how often does, do The Sopranos
1: guys have to send a check to, to analyze this? I know, right? <laughs> they came really? out the same year. Yeah, but it's still like, there's still elements of like, oh, somebody must have come first. Yeah. The I, odds of two, two things that close, particularly when you've got somebody of the... Caliber and name recognition of De Niro. Yeah. And nobody seeing this coming or panicking a little bit. You know, this, it's like, you know ants and a bug's life. It's not an accident. Well, something From happens. what I've
0: heard, The Sopranos was in development for a long time yeah. and that this was one of those. Like, they knew... HBO knew they were onto something with it and this was... Because you even watch Analyze This, which is kind of funny, and it feels slapped together. Yeah. You know, whereas The Sopranos decidedly that at least the first two seasons did not feel yeah. slapped together. This feels slapped together. No. <laughs> I mean, it really... This is so much him, like, counting on the fact that we love the movie when he used to be in good movies that they actually show... Him, one of his own good movies in the movie. Yeah. I, I mean, I came in, you're just kind of looking around going, like, why is he watching Goodfellas? Yeah. I don't, it doesn't even, I mean, there's, it's not funny. It's supposed to be funny. It's awkward. It's just awkward. This was, a, this was a weird film generally, because the, the, the basic
1: idea is that, um, Robert Nero and his family are, uh, a mob family who are on the run, they're in the witness protection um, uh, system, which apparently, and I think this will be a great surprise to the FBI, <laughs> involves sending people to France. Yeah, that was... I was. I really... thought
0: they sent them to Duluth. Yeah, I thought Canada tops. Yeah, really,
1: you <laughs> <know>? <laughs> I, th- I think within sight of Canada, I think like the the back end of Detroit where you can look across and go, uh,
0: yeah, I wish they, I had
1: healthcare in a house.
0: Saying here at one point, like they previously were in the Riviera, I'm yeah. like... I will gladly go murder a bunch of people for the mob if I can get a house paid for by the government to, on the French Riviera. Yeah. I,
1: <laughs> and so they get sent to, to Normandy because they screwed up their, their last uh, location. And they're sent to this this kind of uh, middling little town yeah. where they decide to um, be slightly more obviously mobby and dangerous, Um than Steve Martin in My Blue Heaven, <laughs> which was the last time I've seen anybody seemingly so hell bent on on burning their witness relocation cut. Yeah, um, and they, you know, the family turns up and basically does mobby stuff at their you know, at the school and in the local neighbourhood. And De Niro pretends that he's a World War Two historian and he's working on a book, uh, which is a really stupid thing because everybody go, everybody in, in this area of Normandy goes. Oh, yeah, we know all about the Normandy, Normandy Landers. Yeah, what do you
0: think about this? What do you think yeah. about this? He's like, uh, I gotta go.
1: I, yeah, he's <laughs> like, uh, bye! And then he goes and hits uh, the uh, the plumber over the head with a baseball bat.
0: Which is actually, the, the book thing is one of the only things I found really interesting about De Niro's character in this film, which should have been more... It should have been played up more, is the fact that he genuinely starts getting an interest in writing about his own life. Yeah. But it's just kind of a tiny little footnote to the rest of the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really...
0: Go anywhere? No. Nothing
1: about... That's the problem with this film. There's there's so many things that could have been done really, really well. And I think there's eight different scripts of the family. And it's like they took scenes from each one and they're vaguely interlinked. <laughs> uh It's not... Even, they did an exquisite corpse with them. Like it really, naked lunch, I was actually—that you know? is exactly what I was about to say. It's not even like it was script polished. It was really like they gave the outline to a whole bunch of different people um and said, "Write this script." And it is so tonally all over the place. Now, normally, this this would be okay because it's Luke Besson directing and Luke Besson. I think, does a better job of wrangling
0: weird, all-over-the-place tone in film. He does. And there's and certainly films where he's really made it work. Like, the, for me, The Fifth Element is yeah. one of those. It's all over the place. It's a mess, but it's a glorious mess. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is just a mess. Yeah. It
0: is so
1: weirdly wrong. And character motivations are all over the shop. And subplots don't... They they tie back in, but they're not really anything to
0: do with anything. Um, there's a lot of unevenness towards what they're doing with each character in the family, too, is they're trying to give them their own little stories. But some of them literally just peter out completely like Michelle Pfeiffer's get started. But do, wh- wh- do you remember what it came to? Because I don't. I remember there's a start where she blows up a local French market because she's pissed but other than that what does she do except bitch at De Niro for the rest of the movie uh,
1: and make pasta
0: yeah and make pasta make yeah. pasta
1: and, and distract their handlers uh, uh, as well uh, like
0: the, the teenage son in here seems like he's going to be an interesting character he's the guy with the, the the brainy mob guy who's like setting up like protection gigs and stuff like that at school and you're he's, like, he's Steve McQueen in The Great
1: Escape he's, right? he's the fixer and he's phenomenal in, in this no no it was James Garner who was the fixer in right James yeah Garner, you're right. and he, and he, and it's that he does and he's like playing everybody off against each other and that that would have been a phenomenal film you know yeah. this this nasty little child from American child with mob connections who gets dropped into a french school and just
0: ends up running the place would actually have been a much more interesting well, film yeah especially like if you take that and you put it in this film you're like that should play into how and they get out of the inevitable Inevitable part as we see coming all the way to the film where the mob finds where they are sends their people the mob which, shoot which seemingly was imported from 1952 right <laughs> but it has nothing to do with anything yeah you're like at that point it's like no no that was just so we gave him something to do during the film that was it it doesn't play in anything well why did you spend so much time building it up if it just hangs there and there's no the kid never learns anything he's never punished for it he never succeeds because of it it doesn't do have anything to do with anything
1: and, mean, and the same n- thing with the daughter who has this plot line where she turns out to be yeah, you, know, you think she's going to be manipulative in the same way, and then it turns out she's
0: extremely violent. Yeah, she has a um, very big anger problem. But then they get they, just, they get rid of that completely to have her suddenly fall in love with like a, a a teaching assistant. Yeah, and like make her all where she's all about teenage love. Like like literally halfway through, she changes into an entirely different character in yeah. the script
1: with no motivation. And then suddenly in the in the third act, she forgets about all of that as well. Yeah, like and she's like, oh, I'm just going to go and shoot a bunch of of, of stereotypical mob guys who I'm absolutely convinced Seth MacFarlane must have written them because whenever he does, like, his spoofs on mob stuff, right. he's all like, yeah, forget about it. And they
0: really are like that. They're, they're completely stereotypical. Did you catch that moment where they go, uh, there's so many, like, drop plot elements. There's a point, they make a point of telling you early in the film that Robert De Niro, the only guy he would never, ever snitch on, even though he snitched on everybody else, was the one guy who was played by Big Pussy from The Sopranos, I forget yeah. the actor's name. You know, recognizable mob actor. It's like, I would never, ever do that. And he didn't. And they do finally bring that guy back into the film just briefly enough to have him do something that has absolutely nothing to do with that fact and doesn't play into what we were yeah. told about that earlier at all. So, why did you even bring it up in the first place? There's lots of shit like that throughout yeah. this thing. They're not red herrings, they're bad writing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is either five or six good script policies away from being good film or five or six good script policies too far past being good film. Right. This is. I mean, I can see why De Niro took this because he's kind of lazy these days (laughs) uh i mean he's still got chops
0: i I would argue it's not even laziness so much as that hollywood doesn't know what to do with him anymore i think that that's why he just he's taking the lead role in a tv show now uh for i want to say showtime i can't remember so but uh it's like because everybody all the interesting characters are being written for television now yeah Uh, hollywood exec sees de niro and all they see is characters like this yeah Uh, the last Good film I saw him in. Silver uh, Linings Playbook. Hmm? Silver Linings
1: Playbook. Yeah, he was fabulous in that, but he was a supporting character in that. Yeah. The last time where he was a, a main character, I think, was probably Stone. Ooh, good which Lord, is, Yeah, you're
0: probably right.
1: Which is phenomenal and eight people saw. Yeah, I loved every, Stone. Oh, it's great. I every loved cast it. against character, and if it, you haven't seen it, it's um, De Niro uh, as a. Um, uh, Oh, is he a prison warden or is he uh, I believe the parole so. officer oh, no, he's the parole no, he's a officer he's the parole right. officer yeah, yeah. Um, uh, working with uh, uh,
0: and he gets he falls in with Mila Hovovich. is it Hovovich? I've always said Jovovich I, I can't see I can't tell I was saying Ho-ho-bean. I was saying Scarlett Johansson for years because that's how if she was from Scandinavia you would say it but then they're like no it's Scarlett Johansson I'm like if you okay, I'll say it that way now, but yeah. it's it's wrong. Um, <laughs> Scarlet, you're she's saying your you know, name she's wrong. the
1: the wife of Edward Norton's character, who's this uh, you know white wannabe gangster with cornrows is about to get out uh, and it was it, wonderful in that film, uh, yeah and like he shouldn't be but it, it's spectacular and yes. everything about that film is great and you go no you know de niro can still do this if you give him something to
0: do this is the stone was like him playing a role so uh, against type in the same way that uh stallone's role in copland yes yeah. against type where a lot of people didn't really like that movie when it first came out either because they were a little like, I don't want to see that character in that same sort of part. And I think that, like, honestly, he's just not being offered interesting parts anymore because they, a lot of people get trapped by their own niche. And I think that's what happened to him. You then. know, the,
1: well, I mean, I, I, in which case, what he needs to do because he's got the money and he's got the leeway is do what Pacino is doing and he hated like put them in the same sentence all the time but Pacino is going you know what I'm going to go off and I'm going to do Shakespeare in the Park and I'm going to make two different versions of the same film I'm going to do whatever the hell I want because I've got that leeway and I'm going to retain my credibility yeah, and do what I want to do I mean, and you really feel De Niro's not
0: Pacino's so, done a couple of we... film stinkers too. Like, oh yeah, he's both, not got. They've both been in films with Fifty Cent at this point.
1: Yeah, so I, you know. <laughs> but you got, you know, but then Pacino will go. Will go oh, I'm going to do something that still got some credibility. And I think De Niro's taking a little bit longer. I mean, and his role in Stone really was a Tommy Lee Jones role, uh, who sadly also turns
0: up in the yeah. family in That's the most thankless role for such a good actor, who you felt could have really brought something to this yeah. part. He's basically playing his Men in Black character.
1: No, it's... Oh, was well, well, that, I mean, that horrible one that he shot at UT um, where he's the FBI guy protecting
0: the sorority? Oh, yeah. Ugh, yeah, I don't remember the name of it, but I know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, um, this is the most embarrassing thing he's, he's done since that when he's obviously just been hired to be Tommy Lee Jones. Right. It's
0: um, nothing. Yeah, I... The thing is, there's so many moments in this film, though, in the family that are, that do make me chuckle, or I do go, wow, that's cool, where's that going? They just don't ever go anywhere. Yeah. De Niro has plenty of good moments in this film, where you're, like, going, he's not over top, over the top uh doing the, like, Italian mobster thing, you know, he's not going, ah, hey, give me some gabagool. He's not, he's not doing that shit at all. Say that again. <laughs> hey, give me some gabagool. That was better than half the actors in this. <laughs> uh,
1: it's like, there's so... It it keeps being interrupted by the sound of the phones going off as people phone it in. <laughs> so it's like it's it's so you, you got to wonder whether they knew what kind of film they were making. It's it it could have been a really fun over the top black comedy. Yeah. but it's not black enough. It could have been an interesting drama, but it's too funny. But it, takes, it doesn't yeah. It, it doesn't it take itself seriously enough.
0: And anywhere. the worst of all is that. You're supposed to have sympathy for these people in their situation. They've been in the situation for a while, the fish out of water thing, because everyone there is really rude to them right off the bat. There's that whole generic, oh, the French are a bunch of assholes thing, which is not true in my experience. Yeah. <laughs> but they are all sociopaths. It's, yeah. You know, they're murderers. We see them unapologetically, brutally murder and send people to the hospital, and you're like, you're not letting me feel sorry for these people. I mean, it'd be one thing if they were doing that to people who deserved it, but no, they're doing it based on mild grievances. Yeah. <laughs> and it's graphic about it. Like, it's very hard to and like And you're not even people. sure how many people they kill. No. Like, there's just, like like you said,
1: you know, they just blow up a supermarket.
0: Yeah. For, for no reason yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. Somebody talked a little smack okay let's blow it up really is that no okay it's not these aren't real people in those moments and then the film keeps wanting to sell us on these like little tiny personal moments between the characters Go, but no they really are real people look how they're suffering it's hard to care yeah and and this whole film is hard to care no one will remember this movie was even made a year from now
1: and it was incredible that this thing snuck out yeah and nobody saw it come out and it did surprisingly well at the box office So I think they probably went, if we don't tell anybody, then they can't hate it. And it probably duped some people who went, oh, uh, De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer, how bad can it be? And they came out and went, oh, I know exactly how how bad bad. it can be.
0: (laughs) Uh, This comes out with just a few extras, of course. 10-minute EPK thing of making the family. Uh, The many meanings of fuck... Because they say it constantly in this movie, and in fact, even comment on the fact that they say it constantly in the movie, in a case of extremely poor re- comic comedy writing, uh, and then the theatrical trailer. So even in in terms of extras, there's nothing worth drawing you
1: yeah. here. But that makes but it. But it does come in a two disc
0: edition. Oh yeah, because you, can, you know you can get it on DVD too. Uh, if you want. Uh, Is there was there even an ultra vision or whatever you call? Oh uh, yeah,
1: there's an ultra. Yep, yep. Ultraviolet or whatever. Yeah, although weirdly they managed to do the thing where. Uh, you know they unlike some people who do ultraviolet on a on a second disc, they just go here's the code.
0: Yeah, that's like, what I mean. just
1: just. That, that, do that when we we're not even going to try justifying more damage to the environment by putting a third disc in here I just just i never really
0: understood it. why they would anyway you don't there's no situation in which you would really need the code i mean you can't there's, there's no situation in which you really need this film yeah that's true so it's <laughs> pointless either way uh but you know what that is the end of this week's digital noise i want to thank richard whittaker for joining me thank you thank you so much uh i'm Next week, the part of Brian and for Everon will be played by Richard Whittaker. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm sorry. We love but you, we will, Brian. We will have you on here on a show with both of us at some point. For sure.
1: <sighs> I don't believe they are
0: two of you. <laughs> We're not I the have same never
1: person. seen you. Uh, I think one of you is the microphone because I've never seen both you and the microphone in the same place at the same time.
0: Anyway. There we go. That's not, It's not a thing. Don't believe the hype. <laughs> uh. You can check out Richard's writings at austinchronicle.com is that, that correct? is correct uh, where you are in the movie section right uh, and and anywhere where they need me You just did a, uh, a review on The Devil's Backbone but not Blackbone. Not devil... it's a totally different movie with the Pam Greer it was excellent <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> i'm sorry yeah uh devil's backbone also the wonderful guillermo del
1: toro um cabinet of curiosities book which if you if you are running around this moment trying to find somebody a late christmas present and you know that they a film obsessive go go get that book
0: that would be yeah, the that'll book. keep them busy for months and yeah. they'll
1: also be sad that they don't have all the neat shit that guillermo del toro has
0: and that guy's got a collection uh, uh, i need to be his friend yeah, just, or, or just him <laughs> yeah
1: we we'll just skin yeah, him
0: and wear him as a suit. I think both of us could hide inside of him.
1: Oh, no,
0: sorry, he's, he's got terrible. a bit skinnier now. I mean, he's, not, he? he's not Peter Jackson level like. <laughs> I was going to say, like, like Peter. The secret to losing a bunch of weight is making a Lord of the Rings film.
1: Uh, uh, I, I still personally have a theory that you know, the quality of Peter Jackson films is directly related to his weight. <laughs>
0: really? Because they, cause I, I love the whole first trilogy all the way through. And I, he's fat at the beginning and skinny at the end.
1: Yeah. I, even even diehard fans of the trilogy, uh, uh, who are friends of mine, kind of go, Yeah, you know, I, I watched the extended edition of Return of the King because I'd kind of started, uh, and I can never forgive him. Complete sideboard, but I just have to gripe at this in every forum I ever get. <laughs> the f- one, uh, the fact that uh, at the end of the two towers, in the regular cut, he goes, And Sauron's up in the tower! Let's go and do another film. And it, like never deals with it. Just <laughs> right. just walks off. It's like it never. Like what the
0: hell? How is that not that something just, you thought yeah, should have been shouldn't, in the theatrical? Should
1: this be resolved? Yeah. Uh, and two, that he takes the Hobbit, oh, which is you know smaller than any one book in, in the Lord of the Rings, is turning into three films. It's a book about dwarves and hobbits, and how does he make it into three films? By adding more elves! Yeah. The one thing that's not in there, and when they are in there, they're complete wankers! Well, they're be- all awful, but he goes, no, really, they're the moral conscience of this film. No, Peter, no, no. Well, no. you know,
0: that's the thing though, is like, you have to sell it to the ladies, and the ladies just aren't gonna be having it with the hobbits and dwarves.
1: Hey, hey, hey. You know, lady- ladies like the bid. That's yeah. all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that that's the thing. I mean, it's like they it's, like it's the beard;
0: g- they don't like the short.
1: Well, yeah, but it's, yeah, but it depends on the camera angle at any yeah. one point. And when everybody, yeah, with the long
0: sequences where everybody's short, uh, does it matter? I mean, even Richard Armitage, who's a good-looking guy, when uh, you're still like, yeah, but he's like three feet tall.
1: Yeah, so I don't Like care. tiny Brian Blesseds.
0: Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Rant over. I uh, <laughs> will give you your own show, and this is what's wrong with this the with the world. Rest. <laughs> alright like uh, an angry English Walter Wichel oh, that's actually not a terrible idea
1: little <laughs> <laughs> the thing
0: rant on
1: <laughs> anyway bye
0: bye